these four cards represent the worst of the world of illusion. Now, it then goes on to say what's in the world of illusion is justice, time, the passage of time, and chance, the Wheel of Fortune. They are only in the illusion. They're not found anywhere else. They're part of what brings balance to the illusion or, or shows the illusion to be the illusion. And so you go through this and then you go through, they then had this message of how you move beyond that. And that is the dark night of the soul journey. And so, you know, the hanged man going through the devil card is the dark night of the soul. And then you go into the treasury of light. And all the last cards um, are all light symbols, the star card, the moon card, the sun card. They're all about light. And, they, and the, the Gnostics talked about the, the, the temple as being the treasury of light. This is a place of enlightenment. And so these guys understood all of this and created these beautiful images to depict this journey about how to leave the world of illusion. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking with Russell Sturgis. Russell is a thought leader in Western mindfulness. Early in his life, he became a very successful health professional, a father and a lay minister. However, he became burnt out Divorced, depressed, seriously obese, had left the church and declared bankrupt. But as the saying goes, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and Providence provided Russell with a series of teachers who helped him to heal, create the impetus to develop the Center for Western Mindfulness, and find his mission in life, which is to train sufficient people to mentor others using his program, such that a critical mass can initiate a global reset based on love and not fear. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcast. Your opinions matter and your ratings help us to grow and help more people to be healthy, find freedom of body and mind, and to live their dreams. We hope you enjoy the conversation between Paul and Russell as they talk about the topic of his latest book, The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot, The Cathar Code Hidden in the Cards. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I have a very interesting guest and a topic that is very interesting to me. We are going to be talking about the Cathar Code with Russell Sturgis, who is the author of, honestly, one of the very best books on tarot. I've ever read, and I've read somewhere between 60 and 100 really thorough books on the tarot. And I took this book on vacation with me because I just happened to come across it. And my soul said, get that book. So I did. And once I started reading and I could not put it down, unfortunately, we were on vacation for a couple of weeks. So by the time I got home, I was close to the last chapter, but it was riveting. It's a very high quality book. Russell's got a beautiful message and you can tell it really comes from not only his heart, but a lot of life experience. So um, the book's called The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot, The Cathar Code Hidden in the Cards. And what you're going to learn today, I think you're going to find profound and interesting and far deeper than most people conceive of the tarot, because really Russell's message, as you're about to see, isn't really just about tarot. It's about something much deeper. I won't spoil the surprise for you. So Russell, welcome to Living 4D. I'm super excited to share with you and discuss your amazing book. Thank you for inviting me and to participate. And and really, uh, I'm humbled by your enthusiasm. 
Uh, well, thank you. You you earned it. You know, I, I always give credit where credit's due. And I'm also famous for telling people when I think there's <laughs> weaknesses or flaws or downright misgivings in their works, as anyone listening is probably aware. But honestly, I've studied the tarot for many years. And as I shared with you in our personal conversations, um, I've been practicing it for a very long time and even have my own system. In fact, I'm running a uh, a tarot workshop this weekend, which will be amazing. And I'll be exposing people to your book for sure. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Russell, as I read your book, I found the story of your life path very inter- interesting, as well as the process you went through to ultimately write the spiritual roots of the tarot. Um, it seems to me that you've not only learned a lot, traveled a lot, but went through quite a lot of internal digestion and the birthing uh, and the birthing pains that most any author goes through delivering their birth child into the world as a book or a project, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, I'd love it if you could share an overview of your life and the process that motivated and ultimately led to your interest in the tarot and the creation of your book, and which seems to have led to your system of mindfulness. I just, because a lot of people will obviously not have read the book, I found learning about you was very interesting to me because I felt more connected to you as an author. And because I understood your background, it was interesting because learning your background as a therapist and what you were involved in, I had this sense of, I understand why he can see this way, because the way he works with the body is such that he's looking at all the things that influence the body. He's not just a typical Western, you know, isolationist, reductionist therapist. And so your book actually mirrored what I learned about your professional practice as a therapist and which that's how I work. So I really, as I was reading your book, I was not only did I learn a lot, but I really was amazed. I, I had studied the cathars just briefly, like learning all sorts of different sects and things like that. But once I really learned the depth of what you shared about the cathars and their relationship to Jesus and the type of Christian that they were and how you connected their use of the tarot or the practice and and all the things that we'll talk about. I found it to be an an incredibly holistic book. I, I, I found that anybody could probably just by reading the book, find themselves being healed on many levels because it'll bring them into an awareness of how the internal dynamics of the psyche function. You you had quite a lot of great information in there that really, you know, I, I wouldn't, if I didn't, haven't, hadn't met you or didn't know, I would have thought maybe a Jungian analyst had written this book. <laughs> so maybe if you can just give us some background and, and talk to us about who Russell is and how this all came to be and what drew you to Tarot and the Cathars, because I think that's all very fascinating. Look, it's such a um, uh, an interesting journey because to be able to pull all that together actually requires having had a, a breadth of experience that enabled that information to come to an intersection and, and to be coalesced in the way that it was into the book. Um, 
probably the first place is I was raised a Mormon. And so um, I was born into a Mormon household, which in rural Queensland back in the, the, the 50s was, was quite obscure in the first place. Wow. And, um, and uh, my dad was my lay minister um, all through my formative years. Um, I went on and became one of those guys that knocked on doors for two years. When I was 19 and 20, I was a Mormon missionary and, and wow. did all of that. I became a lay minister in the church and um, was highly respected because of the approach that, that, that I had and, and what I was doing. And, and, you know, here's one of the little segues in this is that Mormonism is one of the few churches that still has a temple tradition. And so there's some of the mysteries that are taught in the temple that once again gave me seeds of knowledge and information that became important in even being able to write this book um, in, in terms of understanding some of the earlier temple traditions. Anyway, when I was uh, 29, and this is your first Saturn return, it turned out that that's when my father passed away. Wow. And I had a series of dreams where my father came and taught me about um, love. He And he was using a language that was not familiar to me. It had nothing to do with my experience um, and what I had been through. Um raised as a Mormon. It was a whole different language. You mean the language he was speaking in the dream wasn't the way your father normally presented himself to you. So he had evolved in some way. Yes. He had been, he had found a way of being able to communicate in a way that was different to, to my upbringing. It was still all about love. I mean, uh, and, and, and I have to say, you know, there's a lot of people have been wounded by their religious tradition. I wasn't. I, I had a blessed beautiful religious tradition and I had an amazing upbringing and I'm very grateful for all of that. I, I, I do want to make that clear. Um, but the last dream I had with dad, he said, this is the last dream. Is there anything you want to know? And I said, yeah, I have a, you know, in light of what you've talked about, I said, how does Mormonism fit into truth? And he said, it's going to be easier for me to show you than it is for me to tell you. And he took his hand and he Art drew a, drew a circle with his right hand, um, maybe two or three foot, and all of a sudden this brilliant, um, bright light just all of a sudden appeared and it was maybe 10 foot in diameter and it, it made everything translucent in the room. Everything was transparent. He said, that is truth. And That's then he great. took his finger and he drew a little circle that was about five or six inches and he said, he said, son, that's the Mormon church. He said, it's a tiny part of a much bigger truth. And he said, my advice to you is go in search of the bigger truth. Amen. Good, good dad. <laughs> and that literally became the beginning of me um, moving away from Mormonism. And, um, but once again, a very interesting occurrence. Um, a few months later, my mum had already been searching outside of the limitations of Mormonism and, and, um, she gave me a book called Teach Only Love, written by um, Gerald Jampolsky. Um, Jerry Jampolsky was very involved in A Course in Miracles, and he developed a version of it, a very pragmatic version of it, called Attitudinal Healing. And um, um, he kind of he described his version of it, um, 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 a course. Um, a Course in Miracles for Dummies was how he described it. He really simplified it because it, Course in Miracles is quite an intellectual engagement. and It's and, a huge book too. I mean, it's like a Bible. Yeah, yeah. 
And so, um, so mum gave me this book, Teach Only Love, and I'm reading this book and everything that my father had been talking about, about love was written in this book. It was the same language. It was the same sort of stuff. And, and so, you know, look, Providence has its own agenda. And a few months later, Jerry Jempolsky ends up in Brisbane, um, which is the closest city to where I'm living, doing a weekend workshop at the relaxation center there. I go to the, I go to the workshop. I meet Jerry and Jerry says, you need to come to the States and work in my center in Tiburon and spend some time there. And I said, Jerry, I said, I have a young family, a mortgage, and, you know, I said, I just couldn't afford to do it. And, and he said, well, when the opportunity presents, he said, you, you'll, you'll be welcome. A few weeks later, a, a letter turned up in the mail saying, congratulations, you've won an all-expenses-paid trip to the United States. And <laughs> I remember that in the book. That's great. My wife had sent in a, a packet, the muffins competition, and we had won it. And <laughs> um, so I got to spend that time um, um, studying with Jerry and um, and um, and then went on to Washington, D.C. I'd found out about a lady by the name of Susan Trout who was running the Center for Attitudinal Studies in DC and I and I studied with her as well and um, I came back and with Jerry's permission and using his information which he freely gave out I started a center for attitudinal studies in this country town in rural Queensland and back at that point we're talking the late 80s at that point there were only three centers for attitudinal studies in Australia and, and um, one was Melbourne one was Perth and one was in this little country town in rural Queensland in in um, um, in, in in Queensland so it was just um, kind of a bizarre situation but that's where I, um, I I ran this center for as an adjunct to my my clinical work and and what I haven't mentioned and you may have alluded to my background was that I was trained in um, osteopathic techniques from a very young age I was 15 when I was first learnt osteopathic massage and the osteopath I worked for had taught me all of his adjustments and everything by the time I went to college to study natural therapies I already had it all pretty well and yeah um, so i was in practice um for many years doing body work and and once again you'll see the knowledge of the way in which our body functions as it relates to who we are physically mentally emotionally and spiritually and how that impacts on our health and well-being is all brought out in all of that so all of this is sort of all coalescing together. And, and while I was in the States doing this study, I had the opportunity to promote a technique that I was doing at the time um, in the United States. And it became very, people became interested in it. And so all during the 90s, I ended up lecturing extensively through the US teaching this particular bodywork technique. That's um, cool. But that gave me more exposure to the likes of Susan Trout and, and to, to continue on doing that work. One of the things that Susan really focused on was Jungian um, psychology and, and talked about symbolism, and it really fueled in me a, a huge passion for wanting to understand more about that stuff. And on one of my trips, I came across a book by Sally Nichol called Jung Tarot, and um, I read that, um, and it just lit me up. Yeah, Jung and Tarot by Sally Nichol. Yeah, great. And what she was writing about was this sort of parallel between the the Marseille, uh, the the majors of the Arcana, and Christianity, and and so this is the first time I'd sort of seen this 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 connection. 
Now, you have to understand that, that I still have this Mormon influence. And so my upbringing was, you know, tarot is the work of the devil. You don't have anything to do with tarot, <laughs> you know. And I can remember I was in Boston just before Christmas speaking at a conference here and I went to go and um, get some Christmas gifts for my kids and I went into this shop and, and, and it had this amazing array of tarot. And I'm walking along and this voice says to me, buy that pack of tarot cards. And I'm going, I'm not buying a pack of tarot cards, you know, because I've still got that sort of infusion of, of what's right or wrong based on, on those, those, those beliefs. And, and I sort of walked past it and left it. And, and this voice was very persistent and said, go back and, and buy this pack of tarot cards. And it was a replica of a set of 18th century cards of the Marseille tarot that I'd bought. And so it wasn't even any of the modern versions. It was this very ancient one. I like anyway, those better. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up purchasing it, trusting the voice. And um, and and they sat there for a while and didn't do a real lot. But um, <laughs> it was interesting. Um, I became very aware of, of dream analysis. We'd done a lot of work with Robert Johnson's stuff and um, – John Sanford's work, Dreams, God's Forgotten Language, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so I became very aware of my dreams at this time. And I'd had a series of dreams that incorporated snakes oh. and in a, in a very significant way. And, and um, um, in one particular dream, I was asked to go and hunt this snake and I went in search of this snake, and it was huge. It's sort of like one of these ones that you see from the anaconda, you know. And yeah. and I, I cornered this snake, and no matter what I did, it I couldn't kill it. And and that sort of became the end of that part of the dream. Next thing, the snakes chase after me, and the snake corners me, but it can't kill me. <laughs> And it was like, wow, you know, this, the, so what came out of this was, um, the, um, I, I started sort of doing more s study into the symbolism of snakes and the, um, the Uberus concept of the snake and the double version of that came up. And, and all of a sudden, um, I had these two overlapping snakes that eventually became the lemniscate. Now, what happened along the process of playing with that, I, I started to study the symbolism of these cards and, and I combined the sequence of these cards to this shape and started drawing. So one of the things that we'd been taught to do was to, to draw mandalas. And so I was drawing mandalas using this lemniscate figure eight shape on its side and placing the tarot cards around and playing with this notion of, of the major arcana. So this is going right back, um, um, sort of back into this would have been, um, in the nineties that I was doing this. Yeah, I'll just make a distinction for the listeners because of your accent. They might think you're saying mandala, but you're saying mandorla. Mandorla, yes. Right, and man yeah. mandorla is an ancient Christian practice for everybody listening where you draw a circle and then you draw another circle that overlaps it by 30%. And so you end up with what looks like a piece of the Audi symbol or the Olympic circles, but there's two circles. 
the left side re usually represents negative polarity, the right side positive, and the middle represents neutral, which is uh, sometimes perceived as the symbolically as the womb of the feminine God or the feminine aspect of God. And, and so Russell's talking about the Mandorla practice, which uh, union psychologists also do use in their practice. I've, I've used it myself and taught it to patients and students in class and things like that. It's a very interesting and, and quite a profound practice. Hmm. Well, that center shape, the overlapping circles, is actually called um, 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 the um, Mandorla is is that that overlapping and and yes yeah, so this was all part of what was going on during this particular part of the journey thank you for explaining that and um <clears throat> and there came a point where i really felt a strong urge to want to incorporate my knowledge of the scriptures because i i let me tell you you know i was very very strongly um infused with the christian scriptures in my childhood i mean we we went through um there was training within our church when i was in high school where everybody else was still sleeping in i was up doing a church program five mornings a week for several years in high school where i was learning the scriptures so i i i was indoctrinated not just with Mormonism, but, but I also had a passion and love for the New Testament. And, um, and so I was, I saw something in this that I felt that I wanted to, to write about. And that led me to making the decision to go to Italy and to live in, um, Italy for a year while I researched and wrote about this work. And, um, and I did that in 2007. I got there at the end of 2006 and spent nearly all of 2007 in Italy while I wrote the first draft of my first book, which was called Metanoia, Renovating the House of Your Spirit. And, um, um, and I self-published that in 2009 and then made the decision a couple of years ago to um, rewrite that. And to it was, it was very heavy and a lot of people had trouble reading it because it was so intense. And so I rewrote it into the um, spiritual roots of the tarot. Oh wow! I didn't realize that that one had led to this. And I think you mentioned your your time in Italy and in the spiritual roots of the tarot. I remember you're, you know, talking about a variety of experiences there and your digestive process. And you know, I, I'm like, because I'm I'm writing my twelfth book now, which is a series of books actually. Um, so having been through the process many times, I had a lot of empathy for you. I'm like, I know what this guy is going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting in terms of even my own journey, you know, that the first book was basically written in response to my childhood narrative, which included the idea that I wasn't smart enough. And I wrote it as an academic treaty. Um, in, in, and, and, it, and it just didn't need to be that. And it, but so the first book was written about my own, um, childhood wound. And in fact, the first person I sent it to was my English teacher from high school and said, here, look what I've done, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and whereas the spiritual roots of the tarot was written as an act of service and it had a very different motive. And so, um, so when I wrote it, it was about how can I really reach people and give people the, the essence of what this is about? And I don't have to prove anything. This is about how can I serve humanity through the writing? And, um, and so they're two very different books. Well, you know, one of the things I loved is all the history of the tarot and the Marseille deck. And 
you did such a great job of of talking about the various you know royalty involved and you know whether they be kings or queens or knights or bishops or whatever they were um i normally just skip that stuff in tarot books because i'm more interested in you know the practical how to and in the f theory of it but um you did such a good job writing it and and the stories were actually they helped really tell the story of the Cathars and why they had to keep things secret. And I love the part as, as, as you wrote it, where that even later on, it was still being kept secret to some degree, it, you know, and, and so you showed how that there was people that understood the essence of this message and how important it was to conceal it to some degree so that it didn't get destroyed. Yeah. And so I just want to congratulate you because one, to get me to read stuff like that means you're a damn good writer. And two, I like how you, you didn't just give the history from like, here's the history, but here's, there's a developmental theme going on in here. And, and all the stories about the, you know, the marriages, the, the affairs and all that stuff, it, it made it very human. You know, it helps us see it helped me see that really the the human condition hasn't changed for a very long time the same things that help us be successful the same things that get us in trouble the thing, same things that scare us the same things that get us killed they're all still happening which i bring that up to make a point and that's why archetypes are so important because when you look at the major arcana of tarot you, you know people that don't know what they're looking at, don't realize they're looking at images that relate to archetypes that Jung identified as the objective psyche. Now, a lot of people wouldn't know what the term objective psyche means, but it means it's called objective psyche because no matter where he looked in the world at fairy tales and myths, he found the same underlying themes amongst people who could never even traded stories with each other, which means we're all accessing something at, at the level of our psychic self that's a common thread. And that's really what tarot is all about is these, these archetypal processes. And what your book really does a good job of, in fact, one of the best I've ever seen is showing that these are not just archetypes from the perspective of language or making meaning or just, you know, the hero's journey, but they're actually an archetypal process of the evolution of the human soul to ultimately realize who and what it really is from the tarot context, of course, and we'll get into this, they're using Jesus as the model, but really it doesn't matter what, if you go to Krishna, you go to Buddha, you go That's to right. Muhammad, the, the, the archetypal theme is the same. In fact, I've got a great book in my library, two of them actually by different authors. One of them's called, the parallel sayings of Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Krishna. Oh, wow. And it's like 250 pages of passages from each of them put side by side. So you can see that they're actually saying the same thing, just with slightly different words, but the message is archetypally the same. So I, I really loved your book because it's, it's deep. Without being so deep, most people couldn't understand it. 
it's got enough depth of information from different fields of study, from tarot to religion to the life process, and even talk about healing in there. You know, you, you even mentioned importance of diet and lifestyle factors. <laughs> so, you know, you really came at this thing. You know, if I had to give an analogy, it's like a clear light that your father showed you was passed through a prism and you captured the rainbow and mm, brought the rainbow into a spherical presentation and then showed how tarot really shows us how to bring all these aspects of ourselves together so that we can actually really understand what it means to be fully human is, is, is what I would call it. Those are just my words, of course. Hello, everybody. I'm super excited to announce our new live show called PT 3.0 that will be available to you at youtube.com forward slash check institute. That's C-H-E-K Institute. Each PT 3.0 episode will be offered every first and third Wednesday of the month and is a 30-minute live show designed specifically to help exercise professionals and anyone who wants to use exercise scientifically in their practices. The host of the show will be a Czech faculty member, a high-level practitioner, or an industry expert that is aligned with Czech principles, and each show offers us the following free bonus materials. A Q&A segment at the end of the episode, a downloadable reference guide to help audience members apply what they've learned. We call this PT 3.0 because the purpose of the show is to provide next generation training to personal trainers and to help them evolve in their practice. PT 3.0 is a web show designed to provide 30 minutes of intense, essential training to personal trainers and strength coaches that will make an instant impact on their business and practice. This is not a webinar or a podcast, but a fully produced online show featuring a live host and high-quality footage of assessments, exercises, stretches, and program design together with Q&A for targeted bite-sized education. Each episode will be highly focused, training, for example, one assessment or one program design technique or one stretch, etc. Each episode will be broadcast live on our YouTube channel, and the show is free. Hallelujah. Each episode will be recorded and available to you on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash check institute. And again, it's completely free. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for notification when each episode begins by going to youtube.com forward slash check institute. To see our upcoming episode schedule and to receive advanced notifications of all episodes, go to pt3.com checkinstitute.com. Once again, to see our upcoming episode schedule and receive advanced notification for all episodes, go to pt3.checkinstitute.com. We hope you enjoy this live show. Russell, from my extensive studies and practice of tarot, I conclude that tarot is very much like love. It pulls everything together only to blow it apart again seemingly endlessly in a succession of uh, mysterious stirrups and facilitates conscious growth and development. You know, you think of, you know, how many people get married, fall in love, think they're going to be married forever. And then two years later, they're in an affair. And the next thing you know, they're running off with someone else. And, uh, you know, I've heard of people having love, love affairs on their wedding day and, and I remember reading, um, I think it was Madame Blavatsky, 
she she speaks about the nature of love and she gives the analogy. She says, look, if you take, uh, you know, sodium and chloride and put them in a solution, they'll bond together. But if you put this chemical in, they'll come become something else and there's nothing they can do about it. And she was describing that that's the power of love. And so I, I think, you know, you see with all the people that are afraid of tarot, it's devil worship. There's tarot blowing things apart, but then you get someone like me or you that really, really truly begins to understand and it pulls everything together. Um, so as you well know, the tarot is shrouded in mystery. Um, and it is something that is both loved by many and despised by just as many and labeled by those with dogmatic unquestioned belief as devil's work or devil's play, as we've already talked about, uh, something that amuses me to no end actually, but is, uh, it's also a source of sadness, particularly with the issues of the world today being what they are. Um, where I'm seeing Christian leaders telling their flocks that God wants them to be vaccinated and, you know, expressing to me clearly as a man who studied this stuff my whole life, the dangers of belief systems um, and what happens when we don't question our beliefs. Um, so I'd love it if you could share your thoughts on the origins, functions, and offerings of tarot and why you use it in your personal and professional life. So what are the origins, functions, and offerings of tarot, and why and how do you use it? Well, based on, on my book, I, I claim that the origins um, came from the teachings of the Cathar, who were essentially Gnostic Christians, and and they had um, they, they were essentially um, eradicated by the Catholic Church um, between the beginning of the 13th century right through to the middle of the 14th century. By the time we get to the middle of the 14th century, they've almost disappeared. Now, they themselves didn't have tarot cards. They would have had manuscripts. Um, in fact, playing cards weren't introduced into um, Italy until about 1370 through to 1380, somewhere in that period there. And, that, and the, the Cathar had basically been wiped out by then. So, so. So they didn't have tarot cards, but what they did have were were manuscripts. Um, they were intelligentsia. They were active debaters. They were knowledgeable people, and you would often any early artwork work often depicted them carrying books. They the these were intelligent people, um, particularly their perfecti, their their their, their priests. I like that section of the book too. Learning about them was very cool. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And, and so, so what we have is, is, um, um, the cards basically being used to capture these teachings that were, would have been images because a lot of the people they were teaching who were called believers and, um, um, and listeners, um, a lot of them would have been illiterate. You know, and so they would have communicated through image. You know, if you go into, I'm doing a talk at the Theosophical Society tonight in Brisbane, and it's on um, divination or a cathedral. Is is the tarot in fact a cathedral as opposed to a divining tool? And my rationale for that is that these are stained glass windows. These are portable stained glass windows for a group of people who didn't have churches. That's great. I love that. You know, now this, this, they would have had manuscripts. They didn't have the, the opportunity or they, because we know that they were weavers and that they may have had tapestries or they, they would have been cumbersome to move around. Now, 
we, we sort of say, well, why, why don't we have any of this? Well, you know, when the Catholic Church was eliminating these people, they weren't just getting rid of people. They were getting rid of anything that represented their, yes, their, including their statues, everything. And so they just literally got rid of it all. And so this became a way of capturing it and holding this. And, of course, what happened immediately after the... the um, um, the, the elimination of the Cathars, it wasn't long and the, the religious wars started in France um, within just a very short period of time. And we ended up with hundreds of thousands of people being killed in these religious wars. And, and so once again, the benefit of having these teacher, teachings in these cards meant that they could be kept secret. In, in, can you imagine? It's in a game. Here's these teachings in a game that people are playing with. That, 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 you know, what a great way to hide something. Is yeah, hide it in, out in the open. In the open, yeah. And, and so, so what we have is this amazing, um, 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 deep mystery that's in these cards. And what I was able to do, um, in, in my study and research was to unlock the mystery, and that was to find the key for unlocking what the the deep spiritual message of these cards were, and and so as I did that, I began to realise it, it was it was showing a formula. It was actually showing a pathway that I started to incorporate in my own life, you know, and and started to apply that. And you know, I think I've I don't know if I wrote about it in the book, but you know. Part of it was about calibrating who you were physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And I realized that physically I was way out of I was way out of balance. And um, um and it inspired me to get my health better sorted out. Um I was 143 kg, which I'm not quite sure what that is in pound, but uh it's uh, it's over three hundred pounds. It's three hundred and thirty pounds or something, I think that You're is. You're a big boy. I was a big boy and, um, um, and I ended up getting that sorted out and using what I understood and learnt while I was writing this stuff. Part of it included walking the Camino de Santiago, the pilgrim's trail across northern Spain. And, and oh, that's know, a great way to do it. Ah, I, let me tell you, I spent a year and a half preparing for that. And, um, and I, I, and, and this is what happened. This is how it infused in my life. I actually spent 40 days walking the Camino. It was my 40 days in the wilderness. I could have walked yeah. quicker than that, but I actually spent 40 days on a spiritual pilgrimage. That's beautiful. And that was my 40 days in the, in, in the wilderness, um, inspired by all of this stuff and realized that, that that walk itself, you know, you start out dealing with the physical and, and then you are confronted by the mental. And then you're confronted by the emotional and then eventually you're confronted by the spiritual. And so it's like you actually go over this 40 days and, of course, that 40 represents the essence of the four. Everything, if you read the scriptures, there's so much stuff around 40 in there, you know, the 40 years and 40 days and, and there's no coincidence. That four relates to wholeness. Wholeness, which is about who I am physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And so all the way through, so we see, for example, the emperor has his legs crossed in the shape of a four. The hanged man is hanging upside down. His legs are in the shape of a four. Um, one of the people falling out of the tower, their four is coming apart. And then you see the dancer 
so in terms of um, th this particular knowledge, it's impacted um, my life quite profoundly in terms of um, um, how I work in the world and the work that I do in the world. And in fact, at the end of the Camino, part of that journey was about what was I prepared to um, do with the rest of my life. I, I, I had my 53rd birthday at Finisterre in, in, uh, at the end of the Camino, and it was about was I prepared to devote my life to sharing this knowledge in order to help make a difference in the world. And that was the commitment I made. I went through a ritual, an anointing ritual out on the Cape at Finisterre on my birthday. That's beautiful. That's the right time to do it. Yeah, yeah. That, that period. Yeah, that was 2011. And here I am um, 11 years later. And, and my whole last decade has been fully devoted to this work and um, taking that knowledge and making it practical and usable in the world and so um, um, I often you know when I was writing this work um, I used to um, I didn't take reference books with me what I did was I took a I took the cards that I'd bought in um, in in Boston and I would put uh, one of those under my pillow at night and and I would um, just sit in the space of that and I'd get up Four o'clock the next morning, in my little, I, some of the walls in my apartment. I was in a Castello village south of Rome, and some of the walls were a thousand years old. In wow. my apartment, and um, and I, I would just sit, and it would be downloaded. Um, That's great. One of the things I was going to share, which I wrote about in the book, right at the beginning of the book, was I, I went to Monte Cassino to watch the Gregorian chanting. I wanted to be living history. And while I'm sitting waiting for that to start, once again, I had this voice just all of a sudden said, welcome back, Russell. You've come back to finish something you started. I, I remember that. That was an amazing part of the book. I really like that. Yeah. Now it's time to finish it. And, um, and so it was like I didn't need to have to research. It's like I already had the knowledge. I just had to be still enough and available enough to have it downloaded. And, and that's literally what was going on for me was that it was being downloaded. And, um, and so it was like, I'm, I know this work. Uh, it was really familiar to me. And, um, and, you know, it was interesting getting off the plane at Champino Airport. I don't have any Italian blood in me, but as I walked off that plane, I had this overriding feeling that I had come home. Yes, I understand what you mean. Like a deja vu. Oh, it was just this sense that I was home again. And um, so, um, so in terms of it, it's the basis of everything that I do um, in terms of our mindfulness program, basically what we did in developing that, and I'll just touch on it because we'll talk about it later, but I basically took all the religious and tarot language out of what I gleaned in this work and created a program based on all of the knowledge that I've got, but I but I took all of the tarot and, and, and I took all of the religious language out because there's a whole world there that have a whole lot of prejudices against religion and tarot, and it was easy to create something that was devoid of that, that could reach more people. And that's what I do now. Yeah, it's, I'm grateful that you did. And, and even for people that may think negative about the tarot, I think if they read your book, it's, it's really a phenomenal book, I think, for any Christian to read 
Because one of the things you did a phenomenal job was is really exposing the authentic teachings of Jesus. And, and that's hard to find. And I think, uh, honestly, most Christians are very confused about the honest, authentic teachings of Jesus because, you know, for all the reasons you and I know, but it gets manipulated for all sorts of other aims and ends. And, and it becomes um, dogma, but it's the opposite of really the teachings of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And having studied all this stuff, I I have to kind of bite my tongue a lot when I see what's being pawned off in the name of Jesus. And 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 I had that pain beginning when I was a child in, in Christian science, Sunday school and not getting questions answered. And just, I, I just, I, and honestly, I used to be nervous that adults believe this stuff because it, it was obvious to me that it couldn't be God or, or it makes for a very scary God. And so I think anybody that really would like to learn more about the authentic teachings of Jesus, it's, it's a phenomenal book. I have a couple of questions for you. Well, we have a second here. Do you remember if St. Bernard of Clairvaux, was he a Cathar? Um, no, and he didn't um, particularly um, su- subscribe to him from what I know. But having said that, he did describe the um, authenticity of their devotion and and basically said, he didn't say these words, but basically he was saying, if only our priests could be as devoted and aligned to these principles as what these people are, because these people are walking the talk. These people are demonstrating the love of Jesus by virtue of, of, and they are devoted and committed to this as a way of life. And, and, and so he made reference to the fact that, that these are people who really espouse the deep teachings, but there was no, there may have been a soft spot for them, but I think he was in a position where even if, even if he did, since then people would have distorted whatever he had said, um, for the sake of, of, um, um, politics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've read a book or two about him. I've got some quotes by him that are very beautiful in some of my lectures. And I do remember him at least mentioning the Cathars, but I, I didn't know if he was associated with them or not. If, if I'm not mistaken, there is another Christian saint that does speak of the Cathars positively. Do you know of any others? Not off the top of my head. My problem is, is I've read so many books, sometimes they all start flowing together like yeah. water. And, and so the essence of them lives in my soul. But the particular, sometimes I have to go dig things out of the library to get exact clarity. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is, how did you make the connection between tarot and the Cathars? Because I've never found anything other than your book that talks anything about that. And I've studied tarot quite extensively and world religion quite extensively. And I've never seen any mention of the Cathars or tarot in the same you know, sentence, so to speak. Um, it was really interesting when I first went to Italy, um, I... I was I wasn't sure whether it was the Cathar or whether it was the Templars, in fact, that that had any you know that were behind the cards, um, and and the creation of that. And um, I got to meet the head of the Masonic Order in Rome 
um, his uncle lived in my village and we developed a, a connection with each other and uh, he's, he was quite an expert on, on the Templars and in our long conversations it became very clear that it wasn't the Templars as far as I was concerned. And um, part of the reason being is that the Cathars weren't interested in money, they weren't interested in material values at, at all. And the Templars were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and even that whole story of Montsegur, which is sort of one of the last um, um, sort of um, strongholds of the Cathar, you know, they talked about them getting their treasure out, you know, for four of the the perfecti escaping with the, the Cathar treasure and, and people have been looking for the treasure. Well, the treasure wouldn't have been gold Monetary. or because they weren't into that. They, you know, it's ludicrous. It, it would have been these sacred teachings. It would have been the manuscripts of Absolutely. this stuff that they were escaping with. And so, um, so, um, so I started researching the Cathar and, and came, a, w w was given some really lovely reference stuff while I was in Italy on that. And, um, and as I began to sort of explore that, began to realize that they had a particular, um, obvious, um, interest in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Lord's Prayer, because it's an intrinsic part of one of their, um, rituals, um, of, of somebody becoming a, a perfecto, a, a, a priest. But, but it was the Sermon on the Mount as a whole that they had a particular understanding for. And I had begun to see the um, um, association long ago between the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount and the last half of the Major Arcana. In other words, the the, the last several cards um, of the Major Arcana, card um, 12 through the rest of them, had a very strong link to the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so I began to sort of piece together this association. And of course, um, now to some extent, do I have any hard evidence to say that this is, no, I don't because they, none of it was salvaged. I mean, from what we can tell. So it's circumstantial to some extent, but it makes, it's, it's clear, it's rational and, and it makes sense. It's good detective work. Um, you know, as I read it, because I kept looking for any references or footnotes linking Cathar and Tarot together, and I couldn't find them. So that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. But, you know, either way, what I will say, having studied your book, and I showed you all my notes, I mean, I, I literally have probably, I don't know, I probably have 50, 50 pages all through of these big lined notes because I, I filled every blank space in the whole book with notes. I mean, literally the margins everywhere. I, I, I'm famous for, my wife says I destroy books and I say, no, I make them useful. Um, but uh, what, I, what I would say as a student of religion and tarot and many other fields, including union psychology, um, is that what synthesized in you is a very legitimate system of spiritual growth and development. And the way you took the teachings of Jesus and the, and the sort of the message of the Cathars and wove those together and showed how the archetypes of the tarot are really saying the same things. So it's almost as though... You know, Jung says the Imago Dei is the first archetype from which all other 
archetypes emerge. And if, if, if God is unconditional love, then that has to be the first archetype. And Jung warns it's hard to determine. Well, I think he says it's impossible to determine whether your Imago Dei creates you or you create it. And what he's saying is because God is like a mirror, you can ask yourself, does the reflection in the mirror create you or do you create it by standing in front of it? And so what, what the deeper meaning of that Jungian phrase there is that whatever you believe about God becomes your reality. Therefore, you create your image of God. But what you're describing is trans, is, 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 um, transcending the Mormon, shall we say, programming, but moving into an open space where like you put a sunroof open on your mind and let your soul's wisdom come down into you from God knows how many past lives. But some of these things can't be put together in my experience from a one lifetime experience. Like I don't think you could read enough books in one lifetime to do what you did in this book. I don't, I just don't think it's possible. So the other thing that crossed my mind as you were reading this, and I mentioned this to you in our conversation prior, prior to this meeting now was having studied the law of one by tarot and, and they show the Egyptian origins and raw speaks of why the tarot was invented, what it was, how it was used to train and initiate Egyptian priests. And it actually shows you the original major arcana and you can tell they're, you know, they have the classic Egyptian look. Now they, they basically have the same basic depiction as the writer weight deck, more the uh, Marseille too, but you, you could look at the Marseille deck, the writer weight, and you could look at the Egyptian drawings given for the tarot and you'd say, okay, well, I can see that they're just the same images stylized slightly differently. And why I bring that up is because there's a number of books that I've studied and even Osho in his lectures says that Jesus at one point in his life was in Egypt and did do training with Egyptian priests. And so why I'm bringing that up is because there definitely were people in the era of the Cathars that were bringing knowledge from Egypt into the Western world and vice versa. So there may have been a possibility that the Cathars somehow picked up on tarot from an Egyptian source. I don't know because, you know, all this is so speculative without hard evidence. And in the law of one, as you probably know, is a channeled book. Um, although, as a guy who's read enough channeled books to tell you that they range from real crap to very good. Um, David Wilcox says there's a system. I, I've, I've not found the system, but he does mention there's a system for rating the authenticity of channeled material. And he says the law of one rated at 99% authentic. Wow. And a lot of the information in the law of one was very scientific and later was proven to be accurate through science. So it shows that whatever was coming through the physicist and his partner that channeled it was quite authentic material. Hi, everybody. I'm sure you've all heard of the benefits of bone broth, but I bet you don't know about bone broth protein powder. I found an awesome bone broth protein powder with Paleo Valley, and I asked Autumn Smith if she'd explain why hers is so good from Paleo Valley. 
Well, like you said, collagen is basically the fountain of youth, and most of us are not getting enough of it in our diet because maybe we don't have time to simmer bones on a regular basis. And so we created our powder to make getting the benefits of collagen for your joint health, for your gut health, for your mental health, really, really simple. And we sourced it from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished bones. So it is a beef bone broth protein powder that you can literally put in everything. It's tasteless. I add it to my son's smoothies. I put it into his desserts. You can even put it in soup and get all the benefits of collagen without all of the time and energy and investment. So all you have to do to check it out is go to our website at paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15. That's lowercase C-H-E-K-15 at checkout. And I hope your family loves it. I know you'll love it. Keep your body healthy. Keep your kids healthy. And let's make the world a better place with Paleo Valley. Enjoy. What I'd love to get a little bit more of before we move on, could you just give us a bit of an overview of the Cathars spiritual philosophy? So, Because we've been talking about the Cathars a lot. We've been talking a little bit about their relationship to Jesus, but maybe you could give the audience some background, like who were they and what did they really believe and what was their practice? Look, they, they were they were dualists. They were part of what were called the dualist sect. Um, the dualist sects emerged in um, um, sort of around Jerusalem and in the eastern um, areas of Europe. Um, the Manichaeans, the um, Polisians, the Bogomils, all of those groups sort of existed in that eastern part of Europe, and um, and they were sort of pretty well there. Um, the Manichaeans from the third century right through to the Bogomils who um, made their way into Western Europe right through to the 15th century. And then we see the Cathars sort of emerging. Um, I, I kind of think of the Cathars as being neo-Gnostic Christians. In other words, they sort of found a, a, a more Jesus version of their Gnosticism. Um, um, but, but at the same time, they still aligned with this tradition of the Bogomils and, and, and certainly had a connection with, with the Bogomil tradition that came into Western Europe. Um, so the, the dualist idea is, is that, that there's two gods. There's, there's the god of this world, which is the evil god. And then there's the god of heaven, which is the good god. And it's also and, very Zoroastrian. Yes, Zoroastrian. absolutely. Absolutely. And so their whole thing was about being able to, um, leave the world of illusion and make your way into, into the world of, of divine consciousness. And so this, this is made more clear by the lemniscate figure of the layout of the cards because the, 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 the wheel on the left is the world of illusion. And the wheel on the right is about how to get into the sacred yoni, which is that, that, that mandala in the middle of the, the, the world card. It's about how, how do I return back into the presence of God? So everything that they were about was about what it took to disassociate from the world of illusion. And of course, they depict the world of illusion, um, with four primary figures. The emperor and the empress, the two are one. So they're both holding a um, scepter and sphere that are joined. 
And that represents the idea that those two together create a single, they're, they're, they're the first illusion is, is the emperor and the empress, which is about power. Then the next one is the pope. Now, interestingly enough, they have this, this ball and, and sphere joined. And that's, and that's one figure that they're holding. Everything in the pope card represents has two in it. There's two figures, there's two columns, and he represents the second of the illusionary aspects. Now, funnily enough, most people wouldn't associate with this, but he represents wealth. And that's because the church at this particular time was driven by the need for wealth. Everything that was going on during the 13th century and the 14th century was hugely wealth-driven in terms of the people that were, were heading the church at the time. Then we go to the love card or the lover's card, and now we have three figures. This is card number three, or the third illusion, which is uh, romantic love, because Eros is in this one, and it's basically saying romantic love is an illusion. Um, special, special loves are an illusion. There's only one love, it's agape love. And so none of this, and, and so what you see in that, you have romantic love, you have, um, which is, is, um, um, Eros, you have storage and failure, which are the other two types of love, which are about friendship and family. And he's saying all of these are an illusion. It's part of the illusion. Um, eventually, you have to give it all up. You know, even all those loves have to be sacrificed at some stage. And then, then we go to the fourth illusion, which is success or um, having become the victor, and it's the chariot. And the chariot was the victor's symbol. And it has, it's a square. The chariot's got four corners and it's got four posts and, and everything about it represents the fourth element. So they even numbered the cards by virtue of the imagery saying these four cards represent the worst of the world of illusion. Now, it then goes on to say what's in the world of illusion is justice, time, the passage of time and chance, the wheel of fortune. They are only in the illusion. They're not found anywhere else. They're part of what brings balance to the illusion or, or shows the illusion to be the illusion. And so you go through this and then you go through, um, that they then had this message of how you move beyond that. And that is the dark night of the soul journey. And so, you know, the hanged man going through the devil card is the dark night of the soul. And then you go into the treasury of light and all the last cards, um, are all light symbols. The star card, the moon card, the sun card. They're all about light. And the, and the, the Gnostics talked about the, the, the temple as being the treasury of light. This is a place of enlightenment. And so these guys understood all of this and created these beautiful images to depict this journey about how to leave the world of illusion. So their perfecti, their lifestyle was very austere in the sense that they, they didn't eat um, meat of any kind because they felt that there was karmic debt associated with that. Um, um, they weren't about um, having sexual um, activities with anyone, the, 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 the procreation of children it was extending the illusion. So they didn't want to extend the illusion. Um, and they didn't drink alcohol. They worked for themselves. In other words, they didn't expect people to, um, care for them. They provided for their own means. They weren't and, No. And they, they, they basically walked the talk in terms of being emissaries of love. 
in terms of they were known as the good men and women, the good Christians, because of their level of engagement. And and because of who they were, they attracted the the um the powers that be. You know, the political powers loved these people because they were so devoted um and so committed in in, in what they were doing. And um They they also really exemplified Jesus's teachings to love the enemy as they self because there was a number of places in in your book where you talked about how they would get persecuted and they were they they were never mean to anybody even when they were attacking them and, and at some point when it fits in I'd love you to tell the story of what happened when the when they when that last group of several hundred of them finally did get captured because I think that really clearly well, exemplifies how evolved they were. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a good place for that because it's, I think it really fits in terms of their religious belief and, and tradition. Um, so Montsegur, um, which I've had the blessing of being able to visit, walk right up to the top of the, the mountain into the Castello that's there, um, which wasn't the original one, but they it's been rebuilt. It was an amazing fortress, and this is one of the last strongholds. After So um, from 1209 um, through to about 1232, there was an inquisition, and they went through and systematically wiped out the Cathar um, as best that they could. Um, there's a great story told of them going into um, Bézières in southern France, and and they were you know Armoud who was in charge of the crusade sort of said, "Well, go and get you know the Cathars and we'll execute them." And that's what they would do. They go in and kill all the Cathars. The soldiers came back out and they said, "Look, we're sorry, but we can't distinguish between Cathars and Catholics. They've become so infused and integrated. We don't know who's who." And Armoud said, "Kill them all. God knows His own." And so they literally <laughs> wiped out the whole city. They wiped out the whole city. So the this is Christian one of the, practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the last strongholds. This is twelve forty four. So it's after the Inquisition, but they were still going through this mopping up process, and um, and there were four hundred um, people that were in this um, stronghold at the top of the mountain. They were successfully being able to just because of their position stop people from being able to invade but they got to a point where they had run out of food and resources and and they weren't able to continue to sustain um, living there with that many people so they ended up creating a treaty um, and and or asking f- for what the terms would be and they basically said if you renounce Catharism, you can be set free. You'll you'll have to wear the yellow cross like the Jews wore the Star of David. The Cathars had to wear a yellow cross. You'll have to still wear that, but you you will have denounced Catharism, or if not, you'll be burnt um, in the corral. And um, um, we don't know how many original Cath- um, perfecti there were, but this was a perfect time for some of these people to make their commitment to becoming perfect. Because the idea was that you would die perfect if you could, if you could possibly do it. And here was a perfect situation because they all knew they were going to die. And literally 200, the story goes that 200 of the 400, um, basically committed themselves to, um, becoming perfecti. And all 200 of those people were corralled at the bottom of the mountain and burnt alive. Non-resistance. They, uh, and this was typical of, of how these people would go. Part of the reason being is that they truly believed that they were now going to be able to return to the presence of God 
um, through having applied these principles of being the peacemaker, you know, um, applying pure love. I mean, these are the beatitude statements, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, you know, blessed are the merciful. They were, they were living these as a way of life, and this became the whole basis of how they were approaching their lives. Yeah, it's a very high spiritual calling. I mean, you know, have you ever seen the book The Third Jesus by Deepak Chopra? Um, I've seen it and read excerpts from it, but I've never read the book. Yeah. Okay, I I I read it and and really in a nutshell what it was is a call to Christians to say, look, if you really want to know the teachings of Jesus, here they are. I challenge you to practice them. And, and it was very well done, and it was written for good reason. I was very proud of Deepak for writing that because he gave a real honest expose of just how radical Jesus was and said, here's real Christianity. Please do it. And um, so I, I think that, you know, it's hard for most people to conceive what it would be like to really be able to live that deeply connected to unconditional love because of the pain that you're inevitably going to go through. Um, and, you know, without a long story of mystics, there's, there's stages that mystics go through, but the last one is to die consciously, knowing that you're going to die because you are exemplifying the truth of your union with God. And there they were doing it. It's it's an interesting um, 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 thing because the Cathars in, in what we were talking about was their beliefs, and they actually didn't see Jesus as a saviour. Right. That's the part I wanted you to share because that's very important. They saw Jesus as the exemplar, and what he exemplified was how to adopt Christ consciousness. And so what they – and that it was the Christ – that was the saviour as a state of consciousness, not Jesus. So, so in other words, they, they used the example of Jesus to adopt an approach to a lifestyle that exemplified Christ consciousness. And, and so, you know, they subscribe to the whole notion, um, the Cathar, uh, the Gnostic tradition of, um, Sophia, the daughter of Sophia, the mother of, of God or the wife of God, if you're the, the feminine face of God, she's the one that, that bought into the illusion and created the illusion and that the mother and father sent the son, which is Christ consciousness, to come and reintegrate with Sophia, who represents wisdom. Um, and wisdom's the, the ability to learn how to apply love in real life situations. That's wisdom is how do I apply love? In, in, in stressful situations, in challenging situations. That's what she represented. And, and it was the marriage, the Herios Gamos was the marriage between Sophia and the Christ. And, and, and that's about all of us going through this process. And that's what, when we see the judgment card and the, and the, um, 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 and the, the judgment card. And the last one, the sun card. This is the process of the androgyny being formed. This is the point at which the Christ and Sophia are becoming one and fully integrated into the whole. And they're talking about this in their imagery in, in terms of this is where you get to is this, this point of, of wholeness. And it's only wholeness in the form of this 
um, Christ consciousness having been fully integrated with Sophia consciousness that has the right to enter through the sacred yoni of the mother to return to the presence of the father or, or divine consciousness. And so, so these were part of their tradition, which meant that they were different to Christians in, in, in some sense, but they still, you know, they, they held true to the teachings that Jesus was teaching, you know, that, that core teaching when Jesus was asked, well, what's, what's the great law? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbour as yourself. That's the end of it. That's the law. Everything else hinges off that. I, I, I personally, especially after reading your book, I, I would have to testify that they were the Christians. I, I think they were the Christians. I think the rest of it um, has been hijacked by Tarot 15, but, um, you know, I, I'm, it's not my intention to upset Christians, but when you really honestly study the history of Christianity and Buddhism and Islam, all of them, I mean, most of them are riddled with wars and death and, and infighting. It's, it's, so it's not just Christianity. This is a ubiquitous human condition. But when I read your book, I, I, I thought these are the first people I've ever seen depicted living authentically the teachings of Jesus. And, you know, a lot of people are very confused about something that's quite important. As I point out to my students, Christ was not Jesus's last name. Christ is a title. And, and I encourage people to look in a good Christian dictionary. I have Charles Fillmore's, um, Christian, metaphysical Christian dictionary. And when you look up the word Christ, it gives you several definitions. One is, Christ is a title that represents one who has united with the all. One who realizes the God in himself is not a single person. It could be anybody that could reach Christ consciousness. So part of the thing that I think's really done a lot of damage to Christianity is by creating the idea that God became one man and this because it opens up just a pile of cans of worms. I've studied multiple courses on it, historical references, uh, scholarly documents. You know, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours exploring this because it becomes one of the most common conversations I have to have with people that come to me with serious illnesses and diseases. And I track back their belief system to see where's all the polarity coming from that's leading to the stress that's leading to the beliefs and the behaviors that led to the disease. And I get tracked right back to people's religious programming eight or nine times out of 10, because that's the unconscious and usually unconscious programming that's driving them. And I find that very few of these people understand their own scriptures at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's, it's sort of a paradoxical situation that the largest world, world religion in the world is Christianity, but it's also the most confused. It's got 33,000 branches, each claiming to have the religion, the, the authentic truth. But I think if everybody just said, okay, let's get rid of the Bible and just keep the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and focus on that and teach that to kids and exemplify that, 
the whole world would change so radically, we wouldn't need to fantasize about heaven. We would be in a place of what is often described as a golden age. Yeah. Look, I, you know, we, we hear so much about this concept now that they're talking about the global reset. Yeah. And, and it's my, it's my claim that, that in fact, this formula that the Cathars had created is the ultimate tool for a global reset because basically when you start to look at the last set of cards, you know, um, um, the, the, the star card, she's pouring water onto earth and into the water. And that's about social justice and it's about mercy, you know, and applying principles of mercy. And yeah. then you, you've got, the next card, which is pure in heart, which is the spiritual welfare of people and reaching out for that. And then you've got the last one in that series, which is the peacemaker, which means that there is no duality. So all of these things about, all of these things about gender issues and, 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 um, cultural variances and all of those things all of a sudden disappear because now you're committed to loving everybody. Right. Yeah, the, the, the challenge, of course, being that the World Economic Forum says you will own nothing and be happy. But what they're actually saying is we will own everything and you will rent it from us. The Cathars would have said we'll all own nothing and be happy, including us, which is <laughs> why whenever I hear Klaus Schwab or Novel Harari or any of these guys saying that shit, I say, OK, good. You first show us, demonstrate it to us. Well, and the, and the and the tower card, for example, um, it, it, which really was called the House of God card, that was the point at which you made the commitment to sever your attachment to the world of illusion, which means that at that point there, you're no longer attached to wealth, power, love, and success, and you were totally committed to um, making the the transition into um into um spiritual values as opposed to illusionary values yes in your book don't you use wealth power love and fame because i i that's right and yeah, fame which is the, the is need for success. attention yes absolutely a attention from outside absolutely yeah yeah it, you know the thing too russell i mean your book is very dense with deep truth it's not a hard book to read if you just want to read it like you're reading a novel or something. But if you really like have my background and the knowledge that I have, you're, you're layering, you know, people used to say Jung's quotes were double and triple bottom. Your books double and triple bottom. Like the more you. you know before you read it, the more you'll get out of it because you're actually communicating on multiple levels. So someone who really studies philosophy, religion, even quantum physics, polarity, wave particle. I mean, I'm looking at this thing going, man, I could rewrite this book in five different languages and it would still be saying the same story. Five languages, meaning five ways of looking at things, not five spoken languages. Um, what, what I'd love it if you could do for the listeners is Take us through the figure eight or the infinity symbol and the path, because I maybe because most a lot of people won't know the meanings of the arc major arcana. So if you you know the, the magician represents the, the high priestess, and then one of my favorite parts of the book was when you described how you get to a certain point on the wheel, 
And if you go for the unconditional love, then you go around the other side. So you get up into those higher cards. But if you stick with money and power and wealth and love and fame, then you loop again, right? (laughs) And so really, it's kind of very much like the matrix. It's like, okay, if you go this way, you can get out of the matrix. Here's how you do it. If you go this way, you know, you might get your new car, you might cheat somebody out of their promotion, but you will be looping this thing for a long time. And each of those each of those loops can be a long journey, right? Well, we we call them incarnations, whether it's in yeah. this life or in multiple yeah. lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll try and make this as succinct as I can because I, you I know I know it's, it's about it. Yeah, yeah. But right, I know. I just wanted to get the overview so people could get it because it really goes right in hand with Buddha's teaching about the wheel of samsara. It's right there. So what you've got is um, there's a center card, which is the world card. It sits right in the center. If you can imagine two overlapping circles and, and, and the two overlapping circles create a mandala and we see a mandala basically in the center of the traditional world card and there's a dancer in the middle and in each corner is a bull, a lion, an eagle and an angel. And, and basically what's on the other side of that mandala is divinity and what sits outside of the mandala is, um, you know, um, I like Joseph Campbell uses the expression, what sits on the inside of the mandala is undifferentiated consciousness, he calls it. And what sits on the outside of it is differentiated consciousness. This is Adam and Eve having partaken of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they now have the belief that there's duality, good and evil. Now, what's interesting is God knew that there was good and evil because in the Garden of Eden story, he says, you've become one of us to know good and evil. But here's the difference, is they were fear-driven. They were, they were afraid that God would find out that they believed in it. And God said, you can only come back here to partake of the fruit of the tree of everlasting life if you've become filled with love and you've removed all fear. And the, and the journey is to teach us how to become fully love-centered. And that was something we each had to do on our own. And and so that then becomes the journey. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now, here's an interesting thing the Cathars said, is God put cherubim and a flaming sword at the eastern gate. Now, these were two tests that Adam and Eve would have to pass to come back into the Garden of Eden. I'm going to ask you the question, and I ask this every time I do a workshop on this stuff, is how many sermons have you heard at church about how to pass the test of the cherubim and the flaming sword? Well, I, I personally wouldn't remember because I didn't stay in Christianity long enough to, to, to memorize that stuff. And I, I was, I'm glad I didn't because I see how much damage it does. But I, I understand the principle of the cherubim that if you're not unconditional, you can't get past them. They're swinging that sword like a helicopter blade. Well, the, the cherubim, uh, the flaming sword is held by the hand of the devil. So, so the oh, devil's. I didn't know that part. Yeah. So the devil's. He's holding- busy guarding heaven. Well, this is the actual test to move beyond the world of illusion. And this is, I call this the Abrahamic test. This is where Abraham's asked to sacrifice his seven-year-old or his son, which is each of us being asked to sacrifice our seven-year-old narrative. Right. That's very good interpretation. I like that. No, well, that's what the flaming sword is all about, is, is you have to let go of the need to fulfill your wounded child's 
prerequisites in order to move on into relationship with with God. And that's what God was doing with Abraham. See, Abraham had a he was he was cut off from his father. In fact, he fled because he was going to get um, um, killed by the king. And he took he took Lot with him. He had a wounded child issue that he was dealing with, and so he had this whole narrative around children. We know that that's his whole thing was about children. And God said he eventually gave him what he wanted when he was a hundred years old, and then he said, "Go and kill it." Do, do you love your story more than you love me? And that's one of the and that's one of the things that we do in our program is we help people find their narrative. Oh, you have to. That's what I do for my living. I mean, look, I can tell you uh, almost 40 years as a therapist, you can give people the best advice. And anybody that follows it will get better. But the problem is getting them to do it. And it always goes back to preconditioned beliefs, fears, and living a life that has led to them being more satisfied by the junk that they're poisoning themselves with in their very life that they're living. Which is why I say, if you don't have a dream that's bigger than your crisis, then you will never move forward. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to share Bioptimizer's new excellent sleep support product called Sleep Breakthrough. I've used it and my kids use it and it's really good. It helps me sleep. It tastes great. And since it's a new product, I've got Matt here from Bioptimizers, who's one of the co-creators of the product, to give us some more information on how and why it works so well. So Matt, how does it work so well? Yeah, first of all, Sleep Breakthrough is a drink. You mix it about an hour before your target bedtime. You're going to feel your nervous system and your brain calm down. Your sleep latency will drop. Your desire to fall asleep will improve. Your REM's going to improve. Your heart rate will slow down and you're going to wake up feeling awesome. The way it works is we're targeting five different pathways. The first one is we want to optimize your natural melatonin production. We do that by giving your body the building blocks that it needs. The first one is magnesium bisglycinate. It's been shown to naturally increase melatonin levels. Then we add cofactors like P5P, which is a bioactive form of vitamin B6. Second, we have four different sleep minerals that will all improve the quality of your night's sleep. First is potassium, helps quiet down neurons. Second, calcium, which improves REM and also helps transform tryptophan into serotonin, which is a building block for melatonin. Third is zinc, which is really important for the metabolism of melatonin against a cofactor. And it also calms down the nervous system. And then last, again, is the magnesium bisglycinate. The third pathway is GABA, which is the molecule of chill. When they looked at insomniacs, they found that insomniacs were about 30% lower in GABA than people without sleep disorders. We tested pretty much every GABA on the market. We found that pharma GABA was the most powerful. The fourth pathway is they were targeting the brain. We're targeting brain waves. There's two molecules we can use to increase alpha brain waves and decrease beta brain waves, which is when people are struggling to fall asleep, the monkey brain's active, the hamster wheel's going, is because they have too many beta brainwaves going, L-theanine and pharma-gaba increase alpha brainwaves. And the last thing is glycine. Using three grams of glycine, which helps lower body temperature, it promotes faster sleep onset, extends REM. And my favorite part about it is if there's a night where you don't get enough sleep, you'll actually wake up feeling better and more refreshed the next day. That's awesome. Sounds like you did a lot of research to put a real beautiful combination of synergistic supplements and ingredients together to really help people sleep. I know it works very well. 
And I know one of the things that's lovely is my kids love it because it tastes great. Mm -hmm. And we all need more sleep, especially in the buzz of the world today. So if you want to get your sleep breakthrough, go to sleepbreakthrough.com forward slash C-H-E-K in lowercase. And to get your 10% discount on your sleep breakthrough, use the code capital P, capital A, capital U, capital L, 10. That's Paul 10 on checkout. Enjoy sleeping much better with Sleep Breakthrough. Anyway, let's get back to, so in the, so Adam and Eve leave the the sacred yoni. The first people that they meet, um, the first person is the magician. Yes, I love this part. And and the magician he represents Hermes. You know he's he's Hermes at the crossroads because in fact this is a crossroad. It's where the 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 the, the four parts of the Lemniscate um, cross over, and they used to be Herms. I've got these beautiful photos in my book that I took from the the um, um, one of the museums in Naples, and here's these huge six foot penises carved out of stone that had the names of the the four destinations at the intersection, and they were called Hermes. And Hermes would be at an intersection and give directions to people. Um, and he was the guide of the traveller. And so he's there sort of saying, well, guys, you're about to come into um, this part of the journey. And, and on his table are all of the symbols of what you're about to experience, cups, He's got um, knives or, you know, sort of small swords. He's got um, in his hand, he's got a pentacle and he's got a wand. And, and of course, these are the four suits yes. of Perot. Perot, absolutely. And, and, of course, these represent the, the, um, the four, mm-hmm. which is the emperor and the empress, the pope, the lovers, and the chariot. And so... Basically, the magician, and, and that's who Hermes is, he's, he's the magician. He says, guys, I'm an illusionist. All of this is an illusion. None of it's real. But you're <laughs> going to buy into the whole idea that this is real. And um, so we move on from him sort of giving us a heads up about what's going to happen, and then we meet the, the Popes, and and then... Um, and, and she has a message and she says, well, um, I've got the book of life here. And in your previous carnations, you've learned this and you've learned this and you've learned this. And this time around, what would you like to learn <laughs> in the world of illusion? Yeah. And, and she's got Since this lovely, you're here. <laughs> she's got this lovely veil behind her that separates the spirit world. And this is the spirit world. This is the world between this isn't the place where God resides. This isn't earth. This is the world in between. Mm. And and so we're in spirit form here. And and we get to decide which family we want to go into and what our reality is and what narrative we want to play with. And then then we have the Empress and and um and you know we see this uh, lovely little um, out the side of her left buttock are these uh, the ends of wings, and nobody's ever explained what that's about. And and they're called the zigzag of effulgence. I um, Harold Bailey um, was a guy back in the eighteen hundreds that wrote a, an amazing book, maybe in, coming in the nineteen hundreds, about symbolism. And um, um, it's one of those books I picked up back in America back in the eighties, and it's been on my you know in my shelf for all these years. And I used it then when I started writing about and researching symbolism. And this is the 
immature um, Christ represented by the, the symbol of the, the eagle, you know, sort of representing Christ consciousness. And, and, and here's the immature Christ being born. And we see the shield that she's holding has an immature Christ or eagle in it. It's got young wings as opposed to the eagle that's on the emperor's shield right. in those cards. And his has got a mature bird in it. And so we, we, we're born, we have our parents, we're programmed. And then we start to deal with the issues of wealth, power, love, and, and fame. They're the things that then become the agenda. They become the value system that we establish that says, I have worth. Right. Based and on the matrix. Is, <laughs> right. Guess what happened in the church? Instead of the church pursuing the treasury of light, it got involved in the world of illusion, power, wealth, love, and fame. That's why they say the devil's favorite place to hide is in the church. <laughs> now you that know, I've got your attention. <laughs> but, you know, because we live in the, the existence of illusion, which is the idea that there's duality, that which isn't those things has to exist or that which makes those things understood for their real worth has to exist. And that's where justice comes along. So justice. Um, I, I, I love the whole notion of, of justice because what she says is, I lived in Italy and there used to be these lovely huge donut things called bombas and, and that you could buy in, in the near village where I lived. And, and a bumba, basically the word bumba means big bottom. <laughs> if you eat, if you eat these things, you're going to get a big bottom, you know. <laughs> they call them donuts now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but you know this the, this was this whole thing of of there's natural justice and if you keep on doing the wrong thing nobody's going to punish you it's just built into the human experience that these things are going to happen if you defy gravity or try to defy gravity you're going to you're going to suffer yeah. you know and and it's sort of like so justice is there and then there's the hermit he represents he's heading he's heading to the west if you look at north, south, east, and west, it means that he's at the end of day. So back in that particular period, Petrarch and a whole lot of these other people that were the humanists of, of uh, Florence and, and um, Milan at that time were writing about the triumphs. And, and, and old man time was the concept of the end of day. They sort of had the idea that um, life was a day. You were born in the morning as a child and then you at the end of day you became an old man so here's the old man with the lantern we know it's the end of day and what this card is saying you can have all the wealth you want you can have all the power you want and everything else but you're gonna die you're gonna get old you can't sustain it it's an illusion yeah and then of course the third one is the wheel of fortune and it's sort of like you guys think you know what you know, you, you, you've got all of this stuff. I can take it away from you just like that. And, and so, you know, and these four figures on the wheel, uh, I will reign, I reign, I have reign, I have no kingdom. And of course, what happens is when we, when we're buying into the world of illusion, the wheel keeps on turning clockwise. We keep on finding ourselves coming back to this same point. We keep on buying into wealth, power, love and fame. Justice, time and chance are going to turn up every time. I mean, I look at people who, um, you know, lose everything. They just got that drive. They build it all up again. And guess what happened? Justice, Gone. time and chance, take it away again, you know. Yeah. Um, quick question for you. 
the yep. the in in the writer weight and some others the wheel of fortune has the anubis which like looks like a red jackal yeah Are you familiar what do you, what does that symbolize as far as you're concerned no idea um the character the character is um in the Marseille tarot was a lion um and and he's got a um 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 a crown and a sword in his hand, which is about power and authority. But the interesting thing about that is that he's sitting on a platform. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, he, he and 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 the the words that related to that place on the wheel was "I reign," right? And so, this is the illusion that I'm in control, that I'm I'm at the I'm the king of the castle. Okay, this my symbolism tarot symbolism book says. Hernamubis, half Hermes, half Anubis, two gods of Egypt mixed in one form, Hermes on the outer self, communication and expression, Anubis, inner awareness, red is the color of action, passion, and desire. Hmm. So it's it's saying that he's a mixture of the inner and the outer. Okay. But anyhow, I was just curious because there's yeah. a lot of different variations on that. As there yep. is with so many tarot cards, you know. Yeah, yeah. My area of expertise is and focus was purely the Marseille tarot. So yeah, that's um, all right. I just thought yeah. I'd ask you because yeah. you know so much. <laughs> so so what happens though is, um, you know, I I had the opportunity to go to the cathedral in Siena, and here's the wheel of fortune on the floor in the cathedral, and and I'm in a stella in Spain walking the Camino, and here's this beautiful depiction of the wheel of fortune over the door going into the cathedral, and it's like it's not even a Christian symbol, you know, the wheel of fortune had nothing to do that it's not taught anywhere in the Bible. This is something that 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 they subscribe to, anyway. Um, but what's interesting is that we start to see some of the depictions of the Wheel of Fortune with only three characters on it, not four, and the world wheel's going anti-clockwise. Now, anti-clockwise was interesting because that was a Widdishin, and a Widdishin was going, um, it, it represented the feminine way or oh. the left, left-hand way, and that was evil. That was satanic, doing anything with, uh, with anti-clockwise, doing anything with the left hand. You know, it was all about clockwise and the right hand. It was not about the left. And so, um, so anything to do with the church would have depicted the wheel going clockwise. The Cathar depicted the wheel going anti-clockwise. And all of a sudden, now you have access to the other half of the Lemniscate. Going clockwise, you can't access it. You're just going in a circle on the left. You go anti-clockwise, and now you can access the other side. And and so the first card you come with is um, the courage card or the force card. She's holding open the mouth of the lion, and she said, this, you're going to need courage to go down this route. This is going to be one shit of an experience. And so... <laughs> Well, it is. It's the dark night of the soul journey. And so yeah. you've got a hanged man, you've got the death card, you've got temperance, that's a bit okay, and then you've got the devil card. It's sort of like, what's going on here? Once again, it's the four. We've got the hanged man, and it's turning the four upside down. We're now recalibrating the four. It's deprogramming. It's it's absolutely. It's about um, – and so the hanged man is about um, – it's it, he represents grief. 
And it's the grief of your loss to the things of the world of illusion brought about by justice, time and chance. And the fact that you've completely given up the notion that you want to try and accumulate it again. And you're hung upside down. This symbolizes grief in the most beautiful way. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. And it's this attachment. You're hung. You're being attached to this this stuff that you thought was real and important. Yeah. And, and, and of course, he's hanging in air. And this is the recalibration of thinking. Mm. So this is the first of the recalibration is the recalibration of your thinking. Yes. And, and, and the way that we recalibrate the thinking is the next card, which is the death card. Now, I equate these to the Beatitudes, and so the first card, the hanged man, is blessed of the poor in spirit. You couldn't be in a more better place of being poor in spirit than in deep grief. Your spirit's been broken. You've lost everything that you thought was important. And Jesus was saying, this is a blessing, you know, but it hurts like hell. Yeah. It hurts like hell being in this place. And what we see you know, in the imagery is he's hanging on a um, a yard's rail of of sorts, a sort of a a, a, um, a hanging frame, and it's all trees that have all been um, pruned. Well, they've been pruned by justice, time, and chance. That's where the prunings come from. They've done the pruning, and you're left there hanging. You've left been left hanging. And so the next beatitude says, "Blessed are those that mourn," and the death card is about the process of mourning. Mourning transforms grief and it does it by having you become the observer of what you're attached to as opposed to being attached to it. And so, and he's got a sickle which says this is how you sever your attachment to the illusion and your grief is to become the observer. See, when you step back and become the observer, there is no feeling. In the place of observation, you observe feeling, you observe attachment, but you don't experience it because all you're doing is observing it. You're not feeling it. Well, if you look at uh, if you look at Jung's four functions of consciousness, sensation and intuition are juxtaposed. So if you're in a state of intuitive download or to be purely in the receptive mode, the observer, you have to de detach from sensation. To be aware of what's happening in sensation in the world of illusion, you have to detach from intuition or observation. Right. And so that's what the, that's what the death card is. The death card is the burying of those things. So we see. Uh, a king and a prince and a hand and a and a and a pope's fingers being held, you know, in the ground and and a female, you know, that's the severance of that through being. And we see this amazing looking face on this on this skeleton, looking, looking. It's just looking is all it's doing. It's it's got this this looking forward, and that's the being the observer. Now, here's interesting. The Beatitude says, blessed are those that mourn for they shall be comforted. A funny thing happens when you're the observer. You actually come to a place of peace. That All there is in the place of being the observer is stillness. And you go, oh, my God, this feels so good. I'm, I'm now free. 
of of this this attachment free of this suffering in the place of being the observer and so this gives a whole new twist to mourning so what mourning was was a way of externalizing grief and so they had professional mourners i write about that in the book and how yeah i read it how men were the mourners and they said that was undignified and they so they passed laws to stop men externalizing mourning and had women be, become the, the the symbols of mourning this is about you can't observe what you can't see and so mourning is whatever ritual you choose that allows you to observe your grief not be in your grief and so all of a sudden you come to a place of stillness and in that place comes the teacher and and that's the temperance card this is the holy spirit of wisdom turning up she's pouring water into an emptied vessel this is new knowledge of love when the student is ready the teacher appears and and this is what's happening in the temperance card and um and and this is the impregnation of Christ consciousness so she's got a red rose on her forehead um and the red rose was juxtaposed to a white rose the white rose was the symbol of the virgin when it became red virginity was lost and this is the point at which the fool has been impregnated with the knowledge of Christ so we've now been given new knowledge and new understanding and that's literally what's going on here but it's divine knowledge and understanding this is inspiration you know um steiner talks about imagination intuition inspiration it's these ways that we're being exposed to new learning all of a sudden things turn up and people turn up you know like i had you know dreams and 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 even a movie or something could trigger an aha a, a knowing you know there's so many ways that this can happen in this place and and now you have knowledge and and then comes the the um so blessed are the um meek, um, meek for they shall inherit the earth yeah. what what that means is you lie prostrate on the earth and you become teachable you're inheriting the earth through humility that's how you're inheriting the earth and 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 there's a huge amount of earth depicted she represents the element of water which is the symbol of love she's teaching love um the earth element was the card before so we had the air element with the hanged man the devil card represents the earth element and now we have the water element the next one is the fire element the flaming sword and and this is about exploring what you have power for what you have passion for sorry and so the fourth beatitude says blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness give the definition of righteousness because um in your book you did a very good job of explaining what righteousness you know righteousness is a word that is often interpreted to be um I'm right and you're wrong yeah. or the the preacher on the corner shouting bible verses and you're going to go to hell if you don't accept Jesus as your savior yeah that that's the what most I think Americans at least and westerners think of as righteousness but you gave a much more beautiful description and 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 while I'm giving you compliments you did that for several important words you you described mourning well grieving well 
I mean, I I found your description of these words to be um, much more spiritually evolved than they're commonly used, is what I would say. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the word righteous um, shares the same root as the word justice. Uh, and so righteousness is about justice. This is about feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, you know, devoting your life to um, making a difference in the world, you know, in terms of meeting the needs of of the planet, meeting the needs of, you know, anywhere where there's injustice, it's, it's turning up with a commitment. That's what hunger and thirst after righteousness means. You now say, I devote my life to serving humanity. And this is the point, and that's why the next card after the devil card is the tower card. Because this is the point at which you say, I'm now ready to enter. The tower card was originally called the house of God. And it said, I'm now prepared to enter the house of God. I have now finally separated myself completely from the world of illusion. And I'm now prepared to enter the presence of the divine to, to, to now be fully aligned with this. So, um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I always like to joke with the notion. It didn't say blessed are those who are a little peckish. It said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is like you've had this infusion of new knowledge and now you go, this is what I want in my life. This is what I'm now standing up for. This, you know, we've just got this thing. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I've been made familiar with it here. And it's the World Health Organization and the International Monetary Fund about sustainable development goals, what they call SDG. If you haven't read about it, oh, read I about it. I know all about the World Economic Forum and their sustainable yeah. bullshit. But this is what this is about. All of those things that they're, those 17 things that they list there is what you do automatically when you align yourself with justice. And well, they're, they're very, they're very good at, at um, programming people to feel as though they're committing themselves to something good and beautiful and without a long expose and i don't want to slow you down there's if you really look at the messages they're using in the iconograph icon um the icons the imagery uh it's a trap yeah and and the trap is we want you to be subservient and we will take care of you as long as you get your vaccinations and do exactly what you tell you we tell you to do and eat our processed plant-based poisonous foods that carry vaccines in them and everything else. But yes, I understand what you're saying. What you're saying is they're, they've baited the hook extremely well. Right. Now, we can do that as part of our, and in fact, you have to do it as part of your spiritual journey. There's not a choice. Or it's not you're a actually, spiritual journey. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And so, so that first step in that journey is hungering and thirst for justice. And that's the, that's entry level. Making that commitment to serving humanity in that way is entry level. Visiting the sick and clothing, um, the, the, the people that are, that don't have clothing and visiting people in prisons and, you know, all those things that Jesus talked about. That's all part of that. You yes. Know, that's all part of it. Um, and so then we go and I just talked the, and the devil card. As I said, is holding that flaming sword, and as much as the fight, this is about what am I passionate about? Fire represents spirit, and and 
this isn't spiritual. This is spirit as in when we think of team spirit, we think of motivation, drive, you know, achievement. And this is like, what are you motivated about? What is it that you value? And this is a values exercise. And that's the issue here. This, and this is where most people fall off the, 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 the journey is because this is about letting go of unsustainable values, which is wealth, power, love and fame. This is about being aligned with sustainable values, which is mercy and justice and, 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 and pure love and peacemaking. Equality. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so what we have is our need to buy into the world of illusion is a direct result of our childhood narrative. It is. And I thought you did a great job of that because most schools of psychology track it right back to that. There's, you know, behavioralism tries to bypass that. But honestly, in all my years, I've never seen any behavioralist approach successful in the long run if you bypass dealing with your childhood narrative. Why? Because you repress that material, you change your behavior, but you just develop another addiction that's more acceptable to whoever's evaluating you. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the likes of um, um, Sam Harris, for example, talking yes. about no free will. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that's one example. of my questions coming up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, he, he's sort of saying we're so programmed that in fact we don't have free will. Now I, I have a, I don't agree with him totally on that. And, and we can talk about that a little bit later on, but, 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 you know, um, but the fact is, is that for most of us, until we can move into this place of being the observer, we don't have free will. Right. In fact, we are being driven by our narrative and, we are. and all of that. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm 100% in agreement. You know, I, since we're talking about it, People ask me all the time in classes on the internet and you know, endlessly, do we have free will? And I say, well, the answer is yes and no. To the degree that you have healed your programming, you're aware of it and it's not controlling you and you're actually making an authentic choice of your own. Hmm. Not because it's mommy that wants you to do it or daddy or the government. For example, if someone wants to vaccinate you with something and you don't know what's in it, you don't know it's safe and there's not enough scientific research and you do it to fit in, you don't have free will. But if you do your research and come to the conclusion that it's not something that you feel is safe for you or your children, then you are exercising free will. But you've got to rise above unconscious program behavior or you're a train stuck on tracks that thinks it gets to choose where it's going. Yeah, I, I think the place of free will, from my perspective, is the point at which we are the observer. Mm -hmm. The point at which we can step back and be the observer and trust the power of being the observer to reformulate the illusion or reality mm -hmm. without us actually having to do anything. That's the point of free will is when we can stay the observer and not be um, even motivated in any way to have to change anything other than to step back and be the witness and understand. And this is 
one of the things that that um, um, you know we talked about in our um, private conversation. But there's a great scripture in Matthew 13 where Jesus said, "If you can see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and understand with your heart, mm-hmm. I will heal you." Yes, and they're statements of observation. Yes. He's saying, become the observer and change can happen. You, and, and of course, what happens is, and this is what Sam is making, uh, alluding to is the notion that if, if we have to enact the choice for change, it's still going to be driven by our programming. Whereas once you step back and be the observer and trust the capacity for observation, and this is what, you know, that double blind or not the, 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 the slit experiment. Um, you know, in, in, um, um, down the rabbit hole when they d- did the slit experiment and passing molecules through the slits and, and being the observer changed the behavior. There's the interesting thing is that being the observer changes reality. It does because you have to direct your psychic energy into what you're observing. So by definition, everything in the universe is in energy and information. As soon as you observe something, you're actually changing it by the act of observation but but there's another couple things i'll bring up here i'll just let you finish what you're saying there hi everybody one of my favorite symbiotica products which i'd love to use when you got two kids in the house that bring home all sorts of stuff from school and have runny noses and coughs like kids often do so if i need a little backup i get out my symbiotica liposomal vitamin c tastes great feels great i use it regularly and it's just a good backup plan to support your immune system. But better yet, I've got Shervine, the creator of the product, right here to tell us more about it. So Shervine, what's unique about your liposomal vitamin C? Well, this has evolved over the years. This is our ninth iteration. And this is coming from fermented cassava, mm. not coming from corn. And it's in liposomal form. And we also have added compounds in there, including biotin and potassium bicarbonate, which is a very highly absorbing form of potassium. This right here is delicious it is okay you know we're using organic vanilla and organic extracts and citrus bioflavonoids and you're getting a thousand milligrams of fermented vitamin c in liposomal form so we're talking about pure absorption so if you're you know you got the everyday cold or you're feeling the chills or you just need a boost in your immune system boom you can hit that right there it's good for children it's good for you know elderly anyone can have it and it is one of my favorite products. Or if you're going to go on an airplane or being around a lot of people that aren't healthy and you just want a little immune backup or immune boost. Absolutely. That's delicious, mm. high absorbing, and gets to the subcellular level almost immediately. And kids love it. Kids love it. I haven't met anyone that doesn't like the flavor. It's beautiful. Yep. So to get your Living 4D discount, go to symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. To get your 15% discount on checkout, use the code capital L, number four, capital D, 15. Enjoy your Symbiotica liposomal vitamin C. The idea is, is that that is, in fact, you give up personal will for divine will. And, in fact, that's the, that's the key here, is that in in the place of becoming the observer, you actually are sacrificing personal will and you are now aligning yourself by staying the observer, you are allowing divine will as the Christ to express itself through you. Yes. 
now I, I, I can flow with all of that. And I, I think, you know, that's a way of looking at it, but as a therapist and, and a man who's done a lot of meditation and work in these areas, one of the things you'll see over and over again is you can see people who meditate and observe their stuff for years on end, but nothing changes because that, you know, as I'm positioning this here, the observation is, is the passive, but an, but will by definition is an active force. Will moves, will does something. So, and I tell people this because you see this with plant medicines all the time. People do plant medicine ceremony after plant medicine ceremony. They come back and say, oh, I know I should love my wife better. I should do this. But then a week later, they're doing the same shit they ever were. Why? Because the medicine showed them just like observation shows. But where I, where I, my philosophy is free will means you have the freedom to take the action to make the changes that are in alignment with a higher truth, which is your own truth, whether that be that of Jesus or Buddha or whoever you want to subscribe to. But ultimately, if it's taking you into a state of less and less attachment to whatever it, whatever model you want to use, uh, you know, things, um, love, freedom, I mean, love, uh, power, wealth, fame, there's a beautiful catch net. But, but all I'm saying is that free will for me, because free will means you have the freedom to take action, but the prerequisite is to observe so that you don't just use your will to reproduce the same effects again, or you don't have free will. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, what was really, um, powerful in that description of Jesus. And he said, and understand with your heart. Yes. And, and so observe your eyes and ears, be the observer, but have the intention of love. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my definition of mindfulness, and I call my work Western mindfulness is remembering in each moment that you have a choice. So to be kind to yourself, to others and to the planet. So you become the observer with the awareness that you can turn up being kind. Yes. And that's aligning with divinity. That's the point at which, because God is love. We know that from the scriptures. And so this is saying, I now am the observer, but I have a devotion or a commitment to love as the framework for how I live my life now. And that brings the intention of what will manifest in my world. And so from my own personal experience, you know, all of a sudden my world became filled with love in the most amazing way, um, you know, and continues to be. Mine because too. I hold that intention, but I stay the observer. So in other words, it's not about me making my decisions. Sometimes I'm so tempted to, mm -hmm. and I go, hang back a second, just stay the observer. This is in, this is in God's hands. You know, this is in love's hand. This is about love and it will manifest of itself. And so I have removed free will at this point in the sense that my free will is to align with love. And that's the point. That's the point. But. On the observer of the possibility, not the enactor of the behavior. You know, and and I I understand what you're saying. And and, and instead of me trying to 
pick it apart and force it into my frame of reference. I think both of us are getting to the same place, just using different words and, and words. different life experiences. But the, the point I want to make regarding what you just said is I agree with that. But I also feel that you're describing a way of living and relating that takes a quite a bit of maturity and life process to get to. Because until you've had enough life experience of getting what you want and finding out it wasn't so great and making <laughs> some mistakes and yeah. having all the fame and, and the wealth and all that, you, you will continue to use your ego consciousness to think you're doing spiritual stuff, but it takes a tremendous, you see, this is why I spend so much time teaching people how to connect to their soul because the soul is God within you. That's right. When you when you really learn to listen to your soul, which takes a, a committed practice, because boy, the ego will quickly learn to impersonate the soul, and you got to get real centered, especially if it's an important decision or anything where you're addicted to something. The point being is what you're describing is a soul centered or a heart centered way of life that takes a fair number of years of committed practice to get to where you can actually trust the soul's guidance so that you don't have to use your free will. Yeah, that's right. And and in fact, it takes many lifetimes. It probably, <laughs> yes. I mean, I practice it and and I I've I'm forever finding out that as much as I have learned and grown, that there's still a long way to go. And I I'm constantly amazed at myself how sure I was that I was doing the right thing and then end up going to my soul. Why did that not work out? This is what I'm sure you told me to do. And my soul says, no, that's what you wanted to hear. That's what you created in your mind. Instead of listening, you need yeah. to hold still and listen if you really want to know the truth, but you have to be brave enough to hear it. Yeah. And so if we're not brave enough to hear the voice of God because it gets in the way of our attraction to something, then we convince ourselves that we're practicing spirituality. But what we're really doing is we're just working the matrix. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was really clear. He said, you can't serve God and mammon. And so, you know, so the world of illusion has to be let go of. But what the evidence that you've moved on is then depicted in the next set of cards. So the star card is about relates to the blessed of the merciful. Mm -hmm. If peace is your priority, forgiveness is your only function. And if you do not have a discipline of forgiveness as a, an intrinsic part of your life, forgiveness of self, forgiveness of the other, and the ability how to ask for forgiveness, if you don't know the elements of all of that, um, you're barking up the wrong tree. You have to have an intrinsic understanding. Um, Course in Miracles says you can't get to heaven if you don't know forgiveness. Right. You, It has to become an intrinsic part of your world. That's why it was a beatitude. And this is this is the naked woman pouring water onto the earth and pouring water into the water. She's, she's in this humble state and she's applying forgiveness and mercy. Um, and this now is, 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 is her devotion. And of course, what's interesting is when she looks up, here's the tree of life across from the river. 
She's now so close to entering back. She can see the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is to the right of her and it's behind her. Mm. You've got the two trees in that card, in the star card, and she's leaving it behind and she's now moving towards the tree of life. Such a beautiful, beautiful image. This is one of the things that, that, you know, when people start talking negative about the tarot and say it's devil's work (laughs) and stuff, it's like, I'm like, you have no idea how deep the tarot is. I've been studying the tarot intensely for probably 12 years. And you can study the tarot for your entire lifetime because to truly under the tarot, understand tarot, you got to study astrology, you got to study alchemy, you got to study religion, you got to study symbology, you got to study numerology, you got to study chakras, you got to study color and color therapy. I mean, tarot is whoever put tarot together was deeply evolved. And, you know, you and I both know, we've both been around for a long time. We're close to the same age. People criticize what they don't understand. And that's, that's the sad thing about tarot. Um, It's, it's so beautiful and so powerful. And it's such a tremendous mirror for one's psyche. It's, you know, if you, like when I teach people how to use the tarot, they find out very quickly, wow, this thing really, you got to be brave because you, you can pull cards on any day and the ego says, oh, God, I don't want that card. I, you know, So if, if you don't sit with your soul and say, well, what does this really mean? Then you you actually just you can use the best spiritual development tool in the world to keep screwing yourself up. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, is that um, the, there is a point, and particularly once you get into the treasury of light, that in fact, you'll place no emphasis on the 56 other cards because they're all about dimensions of the illusion. And in fact, you end up letting go of the need to even entertain them because you're not, you're not playing in the world of illusion anymore. Right. So immersed, you know, um, the moon card is, I call it the Christmas card. This is the birth of Christ. Finally, the, the woman pouring the water, she's pregnant. By the way, she's she's about to give birth to the Christ, and we see the Christ being born. We know it's the birth of Christ because the cancer or the crab is is in the pond in in the moon card, and the constellation of Cancer has right in the centre of it a group of stars, which literally they were called the crib or the right. Moon oh yeah, Jesus was born in the cancer in, in the era of Pisces. I was mis- mixing the two, but it's a water sign. Yeah, but this is this is in the middle of the the constellation of Cancer is a set of stars called the crib or the manger. Oh, and, good. Okay. And so here's Jesus now being born, but it's the Christ is now being born in us, and and the point at which the Christ is born in us, this is the point where we now devote our lives to helping to bless humanity to raise the consciousness of humanity. And that's all that we focus on at that particular point. Wealth, power, love and fame, um, special relationships, none of those things are important anymore. Um, You are completely, it's not that you don't have them, you're just not attached to them. Any of those things could lead. You know, I have a a lovely, lovely relationship with with my fiancé and, um, but, you know, one of the things when we came together, I said, you need to understand that my first love is my relationship with God. And, and you know, um, and I will not replace 
um, him or, or that, that consciousness, which is more than him, with, with, with a human being. But that being said, I will, this will be one of the most wonderful experiences of your life to be in relationship with me. And I said, and at any stage, if you feel the time to move on, I will, I will be grateful that you've been in my life and I'll bless you. Um, as you go, you know, th- there's no attachment to you having to be here. Um, there's nothing but gratitude, you know, that this person's in my life. I've, and if you've got gratitude for somebody in your life, guess what you're going to do? Love Tolerant, them. Understanding, <laughs> patience, long suffering, all of the attributes that Jesus talked about as being Christ consciousness. That becomes how you live your life. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the, it's a worthy process of development because it ultimately is the only real freedom. That's my personal take. Absolutely. The sun card is um, interesting. You, you talked about being in a liminal space. There's a, there's a fence or a wall behind these two children and walls or fences were liminal spaces. They were the place between worlds and these two children are at the, um, at, at, at the place between the world of illusion and, and they're at the liminal space between that and, and heaven. And, and they're, embracing each other in a form that was traditional um, in the temple rituals in terms of um, embraces that were used in the temple as part of the bonding or the androgyny. And this is the point at which we see the Christ and Sophia coming together. It's a young boy and a young girl. And they're now the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And so this is the point at which there is no longer you know, this is where you love the pedophile. This is where you love the Putin. This is where you love the Donald Trump. This is where you love the people in the International Monetary Fund. This is where you have no judgment of these people but are able to see the Christ within them and hold that in your consciousness. Boy, is that easy to do? <laughs> Not really. No, no, it's a practice. You know what? One of the things I learned from studying nonviolent communication, which I think is a relevant point to bring up, there's a difference between observation and judgment. See, when I say I'm really concerned about what Bill Gates is doing, or I think these guys are doing criminal things, I'm making an observation. But in my heart, I'm not cutting that part out of myself and saying somehow I'm separate from them. One of my practices is that the more judgment I feel, the more I have to look inside of myself to find that person because we tend to project out of ourselves what we don't want to look so we can blame it on somebody else. So, you know, legitimate shadow work is to the degree that I don't like Donald Trump, I got to find him inside of me and work on healing the Donald Trump in me. And the fact that he irritates me shows me where to look inside of myself. And so to me, that's, that's how I practice it. And I, I do state my observations because I think they're important. What happens is you develop a language of blessing so that what happens is each time you see these people and you feel yourself becoming discombobulated, you shift your consciousness and you make a statement, I bless you. I bless the divinity within you and am grateful for all that it has to bring to this earth and, and to hold that consciousness because that's, the Beatitudes were a state, series of blessing statements. God, Jesus was teaching the place of healing is to maintain 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those that mourn. Maintain a consciousness of blessingness or, and, and to hold that each time you think about these people. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to share with you earlier, I just didn't want to interrupt you, is that in the Egyptian system, they did not have minor arcana. They only had the major arcana. Ra said that those cards were created afterwards by other people that were just putting their own spin on it, but that those were never part of the actual training of the Egyptian priests because they didn't serve the function that the major arcana do. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Com two completely different worlds. Some suggest I write about in the book that um, um, because cards became so popular, um, they attributed entertainment tax and you had to actually um, um, buy cards that were franked showing <laughs> that you'd had tax. And so what they did was to avoid paying two lots of tax, some suggested that that's why the cards were joined, was to actually avoid having to pay two lots of tax. Ah, uh, Interesting. One of the things I wanted to address with you, because I found this very unique in your description of the Cathars, is that they were not against self-love, taking care of themselves. Um, of course, it's not greed or, or, or negative self-love, but from what I understood reading your book, they, they, they believed you should take care of yourself. And that, that, so I wondered if you could just talk a little bit because the Abrahamic religions are very destructive to the self. It's all about giving, giving, giving. And so you, you end up with all these people that burn themselves out trying to get to God by giving everything out, but then they don't have time to take care of themselves because of the story they keep telling themselves. So could you give us a little bit on the Cathar philosophy of self-love? Well, look, you know, um, um, and, and this was reflected in the fact that, that, um, all of the choices that they were making in terms of particularly the perfecti, in terms of their austere life was all choices that they were making around self-love. You know, in other words, they were quite, you know, self-focused when they were not eating meat and avoiding having sex. Yes, and, yes. And, you know, it was very much about, you know, being they were self-loving choices. But it comes back to that original core teaching of Jesus that was so radical. And, and you know, it's so funny that this is, he says, this is my core teaching and, and Christianity and, and you know, as you said, the, these other traditions completely ignored. But Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbour as yourself. Yes. He made it really clear that a really important part of this whole picture was the process of being self-loving, and and um, and so um, um, so the very fact that they um, were committed in the way that they were was their demonstration of self-love in in terms of um, the way that they looked after themselves, the way that they were devoted um, to their spirituality, in the way that they 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 were. Um, that became the ultimate demonstration of self-love but they understood you know they had fasting traditions um that were an intrinsic part of of their well-being you know um that, that that was an intrinsic part of it they um um in terms of developing the mind you know these people became intelligentsia they were about that that's a self-loving behavior to develop that level of intelligentsia yeah you you, you you have to love yourself to grow yourself, just like you've got to love your plant and water it and love your animals and take care of it. 
you know, but there's a difference between, you know, um, loving yourself to grow yourself in ways that fit the four traps of the magician. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm loving myself so I can get more likes on Facebook or I'm loving myself just so I can make more money or whatever. But, you know, to, to love yourself is so essential to spiritual growth, because if you don't have enough self-love, you won't do the work to do the healing and to spend the time in observation and, and everything we've been talking about. And, and that level of love is what's required to love humanity. If you can't love yourself, you can't, you can't love, someone love somebody more. else. Yeah. That's right. You can't love anyone more than you love yourself. Yeah. It's impossible to do. Hi, everybody. My family and I love Organifi's green juices. You can get your green juice in two excellent flavors, crisp apple and original mint. Not only are these products made with certified organic ingredients to support your family's nutritional needs, they each have some unique benefits. Your green juice crisp apple eases stress with an effective dose of 600 milligrams of ashwagandha per serving. Helps reduce cortisol spikes that increase snacking urges and aids keeping your blood sugar balanced. Why snack on inferior foods that lack nutrition and often lead to blood sugar spikes followed by blood sugar crashes when Organifi's green juices are super healthy taste great, and are as quick to make as opening the package and adding water. Your green juice crisp apple is made from fresh apples picked right off the branch and are packed with micronutrients to support your body's needs. Green juice original mint contains ashwagandha, chlorella, and spirulina. Reset your body every morning with 11 detoxifying superfoods. You'll love the delicious taste and your body will feel strong and stable with all the micronutrients in each serving. Green Juice Original Mint promotes balanced cortisol and stress levels, perfect for weight management, and helps rid the body of harmful toxins. Personally, I'm super grateful that Organifi makes such excellent, easy-to-use drinks and foods that keep us energized, healthy, and clean inside while decreasing the urge to crave on inferior snack foods. My kids love both flavors, and I love knowing that we can all be healthy together with Organifi's excellent crisp apple and original mint green juices. These products are excellent for work, on the road, sharing with friends, and anytime you need a nutritious boost that tastes good. To get your crisp apple and original mint green juices, go to O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash check 20. That's Organifi dot com forward slash check 20. Save 20% on your purchase using the code CHECK20, all caps, on checkout. Don't worry if you forget your Living 4D discount code because you'll see it right there on the landing page. Enjoy Organifi's excellent green juices. One of the things that I really loved about not only your book, but our conversation that we had when we last met together was your explaining the Western approach to mindfulness and taking the concept of the Cathars teachings, Jesus' <clears throat> Jesus's teachings, and you, you had mentioned it before when Jesus said, if you can see with your eyes, hear with your ears, I will heal you. Um, so you're kind of leaning towards a mindfulness practice there. Um, I'd love it if you just share what you'd like to share about the Western approach to mindfulness because we most of us think of mindfulness as Eastern because it comes very much out of Buddhism, Hinduism, and, and you know, deep meditative practices, which migrated West. 
But I thought what you shared with me about the Western approach and the history of it and the practice of it is very important. So I'd like people to hear that. And then we'll probably finish up um, with your beautiful acronym. Um, is It's CHASM, right? CHASM. Yeah. CHASM, yeah. So maybe you can introduce us to the Western concept and then finish the, the, we'll finish the podcast with you sharing your, your chasm concept. And then we can talk about the courses that you offer. Yep. So the Western approach to mindfulness um, is based on that definition that we talked about a moment ago, which is remembering in each moment that you have a choice. So mindfulness is the ability to be the observer. That's what, and, and from the Eastern tradition, that's the ultimate, it's meditation. So mindfulness means meditation from a Eastern perspective. We don't teach meditation at all in, in our work. Um, what we say is that it's about being the observer of the choice to be more loving. And, and literally it's about taking each moment. And, and we actually have a lovely little, um, um, acronym that we use, um, which is hail. And this, we use this as a tool for, practicing mindfulness and h stands for halt whenever you're presented with something that's taking you out of your stillness halt stop and observe the facts okay don't don't go to the place of giving any of it a meaning you i say use a full stop not a comma yeah <laughs> what Period. are the facts <laughs> full stop <laughs> you know this 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 these are the these are the facts don't give any of them a meaning I is what's going to be the after effect if I continue down this route of what I've always done. Take a moment to think about how it's going to impact on me, on others and the planet if I go down this route. I've done it before. I know what it's going to do. Let's take a moment to think about what the impact's going to be. L is what's the loving alternative? Uh, yeah. In other words, what choice do I have in this moment to be able to take a different route that would be better serving for me to others in the planet. And then the last one is the, this is the, the one that shocks everyone, which is E, and that is take the easy option. If the easy option is to do what you've always done, then do it. Now, how does that work? The fact that you've stopped and considered the loving alternative, you have helped to reinforce or to build a new neural pathway. And awareness, yeah. So awareness is about building new neural pathways. So you could have the same, it could be cigarette smoking, and you're about to have a cigarette. You stop. What's the after effect? What's the loving alternative? What's the easy option? You might go 100 times and pick up the cigarette and smoke it. But each time you've done that, you've built and developed a stronger neural pathway about the loving alternative. And it might be time 101 where you've got the choice and guess what? The easy option is to go, nah, I don't think I'm going to do it this time. Yeah. And I that's one of the things I loved about your approach to mindfulness because it really is, um, for lack of a better term, a nonviolent approach, you know, because with with a lot of mindfulness as as it's taught by various mindfulness gurus which i'm not saying this is what it should be i'm simply saying how it's presented and it it becomes more of like an addict struggling 
and telling themselves they've got to not do this or their life's going to get ruined. And, and so the, the trauma that they create within themselves and the stress is actually as much as the situation they had in the first place. So it's like eating foods that, you know, add weight to your body when you're trying to lose weight, but then the guilt and shame is what's adding more weight than the food. So when, when I heard your process, I thought, well, you know, that's really beautiful because it's, it's a low stress, almost no stress way to begin to participate in a legitimate spiritual growth process and work at a level that makes it fun instead of stressful. Yeah. Look, um, here's a real life situation. Um, you know, because I was such a big man, it came as a result of making poor choices around food. Food was my coping tool um, during my formative years. My mother passed away recently, and um, just after um, she had passed away, I was in a, uh, a grocery shop getting some bits and pieces, and I saw some scorched almonds. And without even thinking, I went over and picked up the scorched almonds which was a real old behavior about how mm. to deal with major emotional trauma, except here was the difference. You saw it. I saw it. I halted. I know what the after effect is. I know what the loving alternative is. And I made the easy option. And in that moment, the easy option was to buy the scorched almonds. <laughs> cool. It was. Yeah. You know, it was really being honest with what's the easy option here. Right now, the easy option for me is to buy it. Now, when it came to opening it, same thing. Mm -hmm. Go through the same process. Oh, the loving thing would be to have just a couple of these and share it with everybody else, as opposed to eating the whole packet myself, which I could do really easily. Yeah. <laughs> and the easy option in that moment was to share it with others. Yeah. I love that. There's a lot of ways to choose a gradient of the easy option that still allows you to be in the game, but also not to depart from yourself so much that you're almost excommunicating yourself. That's right. There's no guilt. There's yeah. no shame. In that moment, it's like, hang on a second. This is, there's a, the, you know, free will. <laughs> you know, here's an old program that just surfaced all on its own. You know, I thought I'd worked through all of that stuff, but it's still in there. Those neural pathways are still sitting there dormant. And when there's a strong enough trigger, boy, they'll come to the surface. And this is what happened in this moment. But what I used was the knowledge that I had and was honest. And there's no shame or guilt in honesty. No. You know? I could hold myself in a loving space in that place and go, this is a loving choice at this moment. And then go on and go, well, what's a more, what's the extended loving choice in this moment in terms of how I deal with it? And of course, didn't need to have to go back and buy another packet. You know, there was enough in what I had to satisfy what I needed in that moment. Yes. I think it's fantastic. Um, and, and, uh, this is, really the kind of training that you're offering in your mindfulness program, which I think is so needed. Um, maybe you can yeah, so explain let's talk about your, your, your own philosophy and your own approach. And because just to preface that you're offering two online courses, you, you have a shorter version and a longer version. So maybe you can 
um, choose what you want to talk about first, the structure of the course or, or the content? Yeah, I'll talk about what's in it, then I'll quickly go to that. Um, you talked about CHASM before. So um, CHASM is an, an acronym that I came up with that represents the, the journey based on what I learned when I was researching my book. I mean, this is where all this knowledge came from. C is what's your current reality? And that's the, that's the hanged men in mourning to some extent. It's about what is my current situation, you know, in terms of where am I at physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And we take people through a process of identifying and self-assessing who they are physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Then we get them to explore H, which is what's holding you back. In other words, what's keeping you there? And that's the narrative. This is where we help people clearly identify their narrative. And, and now what we do with the narrative is we do something really special. We say that the narrative is the gift you gave yourself to serve humanity. As much as it's your handicap, you've developed a whole lot of skills and abilities in order to survive with that handicap. And they can be used to make a difference in the world. How can you take that? And instead of being limited by it, use it to be uplifted by it and to make a difference in the world. So we get people to reframe. This is alchemy. We get people to find the gold in the lead. So you're talking about sharing the almonds instead of eating the whole pack. Absolutely. In this place. And sharing the story of the almonds. Yes. Yeah. That's As beautiful well. too. Yeah. Okay. A is what's the alternate reality look like? Now, this is a tough one for people because most people are so programmed into how it is that, and, and so we have a lovely system of being able to get people to push the boundaries, to imagine what a loving alternative would look like for them. And we get them to choose one physical, one mental, one emotional, one spiritual element that they think would make the biggest difference if they were to change that, if they were to have it be different. And we get them to imagine an alternative reality with those four. Mm-hmm. S is, what's the strategy that I'm going to have to implement to get me from my current reality to my alternate reality, okay? Now, to some extent, none of this, other than the stuff around the narrative, is different to a lot of coaching programs. A lot of that's still exactly the same. Where we differ, and this is what you pointed out before, is M, which is the last in chasm, and that is mindful, not willful. And so we say, you've got a strategy, you know what the destination is, we don't want you to do it. We don't want you to enact it. We just want you to be the observer of it, to be the observer of the choice. It's a nice trick. It is, but it works. I know. I, I, that's why it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You don't have to use willpower to change. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, Try that on my son. I'm going to say, Mana, you don't have to take the garbage out. You can just look at it and observe it. <laughs> you might have to have a little bit more around that. But anyway. Uh, yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's only six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's, that's our approach. Now, we've packaged that into two programs. We have a short program that goes for eight weeks. It's one-on-one -on -one, um, with me. Um, we ha I have other mentors. I also teach people how to do this work so people can come on. We have a full online training program to teach people to become mentors using our work. Um, but we take people through an eight-week program and we teach them how to use CHASM. Yes. In other words, we give them the experience of it, but at the end of the day, they've just got to go away and do it themselves. You know, yes. we help them, we give them exposure to it, 
help them have a taste of it, but to implement it, they've got to do it themselves. That's hard work. So what we now have in addition, and we started with this, CASM was something that we sort of came up with to help people get a taste. Um, we, we have a, um, um, a 28 week one-on-one program where we work with people one-on-one and we take people through CASM um, over a 28-week period online. Um, doesn't have to be sequential. It can have breaks in it. There's strategic places where we can put breaks. But um, um, so um, you can go on to um, uh, my website, um, which is uh, russellsturgis.com. Um, or russellsturgis.com.au, either one will get you to me. Yeah, let's you'll... spell your last name for them just so they have it right. So it's R-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-T-U-R-G-E-S-S.com. Great, russellsturgis.com. And that will get you through to my website. Um, if you'd like to know more about becoming a mentor and more about the full extended work that we do, please go to westernmindfulness.com.au. Yeah, it's an AU one. Yeah. Okay. And, and so the offer that we've got is that, that we're offering, um, um, the, 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 the shorter course. And these are all Australian dollars, by the way. So they're going to be substantially cheaper in US dollar figures when you convert them. But we charge, um, $1,600 for the short course and $5,000 for the long course. And the short course is how many weeks again? It's eight weeks. Okay. And that's $1,600. I wonder yep. what is that in American and- dollars right now? So that's a thousand dollars US. Oh, that's really reasonable. Yeah, and and on top of that, we're giving you one hundred and fifty Australian dollars off that as for part the, of the deal for podcast listeners. Yep, Living Four D discount is one fifty. Yeah, which is a hundred dollars US, basically, or around about a hundred dollars. So you're basically getting the course for for, for nine hundred dollars. That's US really dollars. good. Yeah, that's you know. especially for a course that can change your whole life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so all you've got to do is when you order that course online, um, you, you're going to be asked for a coupon number at one stage in the checkout. And it's C-H-E-K capital C capital H capital E capital K one. Yeah. And H just for you Americans and Australian is H. <laughs> C-H-E-K. That's um, it. One. Check C-H-E-K, all caps, number one. And then the more expansive course. It's it's $5,000 Australian. And that's 28 weeks. And it's 28 weeks. And that's 3,200 US. Okay. So 28 weeks, that's four times six. Uh, what's 28? Six, six it's months. Six months. Just six over months, six yeah. months. Yeah. yeah. That's a good course. And, and for that price there, we're going to give you $300 off that. Right. Okay, so that brings it back to two thousand eight hundred um, US dollars, which for a course that long, that's um, pretty good. Yeah, and we have high quality workbooks. The the the, the caliber of the stuff that we've developed in, uh, in in terms of our workbooks are just beautiful. We will send those to you, priority paid, so that you're working. We find that writing and working with stuff with Helps. your hands and that mm-hmm. really makes a big difference. And the code for that one is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K. Check all caps, all, check all caps number two, correct? Two. That's correct. Okay. Yep. And they, and the, so the podcast listeners are uh, yep. not only getting the discount, um, they're getting the discount. Yeah. So the $300 off for this big course, $150 off. The little course is 
$150 off. And, and your listeners get to work with me. Right on. The person who founded this. Um, yeah. I'm going to put you on to anybody else. Anyone that wants to do this gets to work with me personally. They've just got to put up with my Queensland accent. You so. might resent that. You might get so many of them. You're going to go, oh, my God, what did I do? I just well myself for five years. Um, if, if that's the case, then my sweetheart is one of our senior mentors, and she is brilliant at what she does. So anyone out there that would like to have a woman work with them. Oh, that's a good, just, a good option, yeah. Yeah, who's got a heart of gold, then they would have access to Rosie with those same same um, offers um, Great. would be available to them as well with her. So, um, And just to remind everybody, Russell's book that we've been talking about, I'll give you the title again, The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot, The Cathar Code Hidden in the Cards, Russell A. Sturgis, R-U-S-S-E-L-L, last name S-T-U-R-G-E-S-S. I tell you, it's a phenomenal book. I can't tell you how much, if you're a Christian, reading this book could really have a healing effect on you and help you get to the depth of what Christianity is really about. Not corporate Christianity, not dogma, not our religion versus your religion, not you're going to burn in hell if you don't take Jesus as your savior, even if you don't know who he is. The teachings in here I think are universally applicable. And I think even Buddha and Lao Tzu would love your book. <laughs> You're very generous. Thank you. And, oh, I'm serious. I mean, I, I reached out to you as soon as I finished yes. the book. I said, okay, I got to track this guy down because it's, it's, I feel when I find really quality teachings, material books, I, I feel obligated spiritually to let people know. I, I can't sit on a gem like this bury it in my library and, and and keep it to myself just like you couldn't keep those almonds to yourself no another thing i just want to add if you don't mind and that is this work my program the the, the um center for western mindfulness and our pathways to mindfulness has not been ever taught in the united states oh wow and and we would love the opportunity if anyone's interested in becoming a mentor good um please check out our online training program. It's not a short process. It takes about 18 months for most people to go through the program, um, but it's all done online. And um, we have a 10-week intensive that uh, is state-of-the-art um, platform technology and education. You understand all about that yourself with the work that you do. We have, um, I run weekly um, instructor-led training sessions when people are going through the 10-week intensive. I also do the supervision for people when they're going through um, practicing it and working with people. And I would love for this to be able to not just anywhere in the, the English speaking world, because at this moment we've only got it in English, but um, anyone who's interested in this stuff and wants to pursue more about this, please get on to me. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt if you get some people read people that listen to my podcast are a lot more spiritually evolved and educated than most podcast listeners. Um, in my experience, um, you know, the, the, my podcasts are very much like this. It's, it's not fluffing about it's, it's yep. deep, honest conversations. And so if they've listened this long, uh, <laughs> you know, they're interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Russell, what a, what a pleasure. And, you know, um, I don't want to lose connection with you. I want to stay in touch. Maybe we, down the road a little can do another podcast and maybe focus in maybe just on mindfulness or 
some other aspect of your work, feel free to reach out with to me. Um, and we'll we'll give them a little while to digest this. People listen to these podcasts, you know, for, they they don't stop getting listened to, so um, it's always going to be out there. But I'm really grateful for everything you've done. I'm grateful for your commitment, your path, your personal development, your uh, commitment to doing the research, your bravery to bring in a new system of not only tarot, but a, a deep teaching of Christianity and Jesus's teachings, a great expose of people that lived on this planet that really embodied the teachings, um, some beautiful history of tarot. I think, you know, even for people that may not realize it, but there's all sorts of great diet and lifestyle stuff in your book. I'm like, I'm a holistic lifestyle expert. And I'm reading this going, man, this is the kind of stuff I'd have been putting in here. Yes. So I, I think it's, I think you've done an excellent job and um, I, I, I hope you can give yourself some credit for the hard work because you, you, you deserve thank you. it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Paul. And, uh, and we'd love to come back again. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. Thank you to my sponsors and thank you to all of you. I really enjoy the company, you know, spiritual development is, is real work. It's not, fluff so whenever we can get people together to join us in the process we start to carry each other you know and and i think having you guys here with me i do this so i can grow i love doing podcasts because i get to meet people like russell that inspire me to to grow myself and to stay in the game and to become what i want to see more of in the world that's really my motto if everybody acted just like me right now would the world be a better place and so I think when we get together with people that are living in a way that would be a, make the world a better place, it's more fun. So thank you, Russell. Thank you to my sponsors. Thank you to all of you that buy anything from the sponsors that supports the podcast. And it supports you because the quality of my sponsors is the quality of Russell Sturgis. So there you go. All right. <laughs> Lots of love, everybody. See you next time. Russell, thanks, partner. Fantastic, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Russell Sturgis. You can find out more about Russell's work and the Center for Western Mindfulness at russellsturgis.com.au. That's R-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-T-U-R-G-E-S-S dot com dot A-U. His books, The Spiritual Roots of the Tarot, The Cathar Code Hidden in the Cards, and Get Out of Jail Card, A Journey of Self-Worth, can be found on Amazon.com using the links on the show notes page or on Russell's website. Russell is offering Paul's listeners a special discount on his Pathways to Mindfulness Mentoring Program or Spiritual Roots of the Tarot, Sporta, online workshops. Visit his website, russellsturgis.com.au for more information and mention Living 4D with Paul Check when you register to receive your discount. You can find Paul on Instagram and TikTok at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com or visit the Czech Institute site at checkinstitute.com to find Paul's e-learning courses, advanced training programs, and to learn more about the Czech Academy. You can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com 
forward slash podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a warm review at the top of the show page on Spotify or at the bottom of the show page if you are listening on Apple Podcasts.